And welcome to Slasher Street Podcast. My name is Ryan Devlin, and thank you so much for joining me once again. This is a horror movie podcast where each episode I review and discuss a different horror movie from our epic collection here at the house, plus so much more horror-related content. I hope you're all having an awesome, awesome week, and welcome to the show on this very special edition of Slasher Street Podcast, because I am delighted to be joined by another special guest for the second week running. We have a special guest on the show, and I am so chuffed to welcome Vincent DeSanti to Slasher Street Podcast. Vincent is the man behind the hugely successful Womp Stomp films. He is the man behind the game-changing Friday the 13th fan films, the Never Hike Alone series, and in this huge two-plus-hour interview, which you are about to listen to, we talk about Vincent's entire career from starting out in animation to starting one stomp films. We talk Never Hike Alone, Never Hike in the Snow. We talk the highly anticipated upcoming release of Never Hike Alone 2. We talk Dylan's new Nightmare, which of course Vincent is a producer on. And we also talk about how the Never Hike Alone films and the Womp Stomp films have essentially changed Vincent's life and some of the sacrifices that he has had to make along the way to make these films the success that they are. It was an, an, a hugely in-depth conversation. It was really awesome to sit down and talk to Vincent. And I just want to give Vincent another big thank you for joining me on the podcast. It was fantastic to have him on. So ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, get yourself a beer or five. This is a two plus hour interview and enjoy the Slasher Street podcast interview with Vincent DeSanti. Okay, guys, welcome back to Slasher Street Podcast, and I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by a very, very special guest. He is the man behind the hugely successful Womp Stomp films. He is responsible for the incredible uh, Friday the 13th fan films, Never Hike Alone, Never Hike in the Snow, and the highly anticipated Never Hike Alone 2 coming out later this year. He's the man behind the mask, and he's the man behind the camera, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Vincent DeSanti. Thank you very much, Vincent, for coming on the show. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's good to be here. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for pleasure. getting up early with me in, uh, out here in the States. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on. I'm a huge fan of everything that you do. And, you know, I've got my uh, Never Hike in the Snow t-shirt oh. on. I was a backer of that. And I'm a backer Sweet. of Never Hike Alone too. And uh, I missed the boat with the original Never Hike Alone. <laughs> yeah. I completely missed the boat, but as soon as I saw it, I just fell in love with it and then I've backed everything since. So I'm super, super excited to get you on the show here. Well, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to talk horror and, and uh, answer all the questions. Awesome. So I suppose the best thing to do would be to start where all good stories start, which is at the beginning. So, you know, how did it all start for you? Did you always want to be in the business of making films and movies? Um, I mean, I don't know if I always wanted to or knew that I wanted to be in um, 
in the film industry. I actually originally wanted to play baseball. That was my big life dream when I was a kid. I played baseball through college. Um, and I was looking at film and TV as more of a, oh, I'm going to play baseball and then I'm going to go, um, I'm going to become a, uh, a sports broadcaster. That's like, that's my dream job. Like, that's my dream thing. Play a few years in the league, enough to just do enough and then go start talking about it and like getting enveloped in it. And while I was in school, I ended up um, taking more editing courses, taking more film theory study. Um, and I had always had a love for cinema. And what I realized sort of towards the end of my, my sort of baseball side of things was that like, no matter where I went, no matter what sport I played, no matter what I was doing, I was always talking about movies. Like I actually talked about movies more than I talked about sports. I just enjoyed playing sports. But film was like everything in my life. Like I have all my Godzilla stuff and like talked about Friday the 13th all the time. I'd always make people watch. Like I would bring like sports teams over for like stayovers when I was a kid. And I'd be like, who wants to watch Killer Clowns from Outer Space? <laughs> and the kids would be like, what the hell is that? And I'd be like, you're about to find out. <laughs> and like bring them on that train. And they'd be like, our parents would never let us watch this. I was just like, well, welcome to the new world. Um, and so I've always just had a love of cinema and horror. Um, I grew up a big horror kid. And so, you know, I ended up um, sort of realizing that there was there was a world that I could work in here. I had a friend who got a job in the industry out in Los Angeles. So I felt sort of inclined and like I had a safe place to go like, oh, I can go. I can link up with my friend. I had another friend come with me and we were sort of able to kind of create this base. I mean, my friend's been working in LA for probably over 18 years now, very successful a visual effects artist. has worked on some of the biggest films, but back then he was just a digital artist. And we were all just kind of cutting our teeth. Um, and so it was cool to kind of go out there and, and work my way through the industry. Um, my first job was in uh, working on a, a a curious case of Benjamin Buttons. I was just a PA for the uh, for the visual effects team. I really didn't do much. I did like shot data entry and got coffee and Chinese food. But it was a cool experience to sort of see it all because the first film I'm working on, David Fincher, is the client. And so he's coming in and giving notes. And so listening to him. And so even from an early stage, I loved being around sort of the masters of the craft um, even within your own companies that you work for, there's just people who've been doing it for a long time. They've worked with all the best people. You know, they've worked with some of not the greatest people. They have a lot of stories. They got a lot of insight. You can learn a lot of tricks just by listening and just sitting back and letting someone tell you about their career. Um, and so from visual effects, I drifted over to commercials. Commercials was sort of like um, I worked as a vault manager. So I was just labeling tapes, putting them in the vault, shipping them to clients, bringing them to dropping them off at a, at a building so they can go to broadcast. This is back when you still had to put stuff on tape to get it on TV um, before the world of streaming, before all that stuff. This is like 2009, 2010. Um, and then while I was doing that for a year, I've been trying to like, you know, I was trying to get into something that was a little bit more. Um, uh, what's the word? Uh something that was just more storytelling. It wasn't commercial. It was like features or TV or something. And while I was at this, this uh, commercial studio, uh, they ended up deciding that they wanted to do their first animated film. And so I threw myself to the front of the line to become a coordinator on the film. Luckily all the commercials coordinators were all like backed up with work. So no one could do the work. And I had been there sort of the longest as a PA um, and had shown that I wanted to get into narrative. That's what I wanted. Narrative, narrative work. Um, I ended up becoming the first hire on their, 
on the project as a coordinator. Uh, and for three, four years, I worked on a film that eventually was called Freebirds. It's about uh, two turkeys that discover a time machine and go back to the first Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving uh, holiday uh, and take turkey off the menu since turkey is like the number yeah. one consumed food at all holiday meals. Um, so we tried to like sort of break that. They try to break the tradition by going back in time. Um, Owen Wilson, Woody Harrelson, it was a really fun and funny movie. Um, I don't know if it got enough credit or that enough people saw it, but I think enough people did see it and they recognize it and, and they've liked it over the years. So that's been cool. Um, and that sort of launched me in animation. I started working in production departments. So I was working up as a coordinator, worked into a PM, worked up into um, sort of like PM slash line producer, doing a lot of budget work, um, organizing films to get made, bringing them through like animation as a very sort of rigid pipeline that you have to follow and getting things done certain departments have to go first and get that stuff done pass it on to the next department there's a lot of communication uh, a lot of back and forth a lot of organizing and so after i did this for a few years i realized that like i had a storytelling bug and i always did i was always a storyteller i always wanted to, like if i was going to get into the movie industry i wanted to be at the place where they were making movies like when i when i was a kid and i watched peewee's big adventure and Pee Wee goes through the back lot at WB and he's got Godzilla and Santa Claus and Dee Snyder all riding in the back of like his like Christine car. Um, I was like, where is this place and how does this happen? Where are the places where all these things are in the same like Godzilla and Santa in the same place? Are you kidding me? Like, bring me there. Like, that sounds like heaven. Little did I know. Um, <laughs> and like, and so I always wanted to sort of be a part of that. And, and, and there, and then I realized that like through the process of working in animation, even though I was working in the production side of things, I was also giving a lot of creative input. Um, I was being invited into story meetings because I would be able to sort of keep up with the writers and keep up with the creative people and not just, you know, barrel into meetings, but being able to do the notes, being able to study the notes and, you know, kind of regurgitate them back to everybody. Be like, hey, when we said this, this sort of fit together in the notes. And I think that this could carry on to this scene. And this is a good thing. Oh, I noticed there was a conflict here and really picking up and saving time for work. And I realized I had a knack for it and that I wanted to tell story. From there, it sort of blossomed into, okay, now I want to make a movie, but how do I do it? So I went and did something called the 48 hour film festival, which is something we do. I think they do it around the world, but we do, we did it in Los Angeles. They do them all over the country here in the United States where you're basically on Friday night, you're giving a genre, you're given a character, you're given a prop and you're given a line of dialogue and you have to write, direct, produce and deliver a film on Sunday afternoon. So it's the 48 hour film project. So we ended cool. up, yeah, so I ended up doing one with a group of friends of mine. We ended up making a film called The Red Room, which is on the Womp Stomp YouTube page. You can actually go back and watch my first short, um, which was a lot of fun. We made it in 48 hours. Not a lot of equipment. You know, we shot it with a DSLR. Um, it was like maybe 2015 at the time. Um, and I was pretty happy with the result. I was like, hey, this is not like, you know, this is an inception, but this is. Yeah. This isn't some of the stuff that I've seen, you know, to say that, like, maybe you should pick another career kid or like, you know, I've seen people pitch things and be like, I can see why you do what you do. But that I, I sort of was wanting to be like, if I want to tell a story, I really want to earn it. Um, and so from there, uh, it literally went from Red Room to Never Hike Alone. 
as soon as I got Red Room under my belt, I um, I started thinking about how I could never hike alone. I started volunteering on more live action sets. Now, remember, I've been working in animation. I haven't been on a set in a long time. And even when I did sets in college, they weren't like the ones that I, I'm on today. I mean, not even close. So it was sort of a, a new learning experience for me, too, because mm -hmm. I had to, I knew how to put narrative together. I knew how to put storyboards and cut them into animation and build shots and scenes and things like that. But the mechanism of capturing that in a camera, doing that on set, how to light the set, all those things were things that I had to figure out how to do in live action versus how to do it in, in animation. And so there was um, there's definitely a learning curve there. But I had a good friend of mine, Chris uh, Thelis, who was our DP, who taught me a lot. J.D. March taught me a lot. Evan Butko, who was the camera op, who's now our DP, uh, taught me a ton. Um, but I also had like a natural instinct for it, too. I've always been a photographer. So I do I knew my way around it. But it was, mm -hmm. you know, there's just a there's a like, again, like there's a rigid sort of pipeline and procedure to getting these things done. And if you follow this procedure, no matter what your idea is, you have to follow this procedure. And if you follow this procedure, things are organized, things you make your life easier and the more prepared you are, you know, and these were the sort of lessons that I learned through there. We, I had always wanted to work on Friday the 13th. Um, uh, as soon as I knew that I wanted to work in the industry, my number one goal was to get on a Friday the 13th production. They had just finished the, the reboot. I sort of wasn't there early enough to try to get on a production like that. Um, but I was researching it every day. And seeing if there was any more news or any more photos or any more like leaked photos or any, I, I mean, I was obsessed about that film coming out and I would write parent like platinum dunes every other month and ask if there were job openings. And I watched it as it was going through development hell through all the years, trying to figure out like, okay, as soon as it gets greenlit, I'm going to go try to find a way into that company so I can be a PA on that set. Um, it never materialized because the film was never made. Um, and so I started thinking about like, you know, for years, I had been a Friday the 13th fan who loved the films, who grew up with them and sort of just acknowledged that they were a little wacky, that they didn't follow like one, any one set of rules. They sort of kind of came undone towards the end where anything became possible. Demon snakes, space trips, you know, we had Freddy versus Jason. And then they did 2009 and I thought it was a, a major opportunity for them to reset the character in a very specific way. And they didn't do it that way. Mm -hmm. And so my enjoyment for the film, I set myself up for failure. I set expectations. I wanted to see a specific movie, but they didn't deliver that movie. They sort of gave me the same meal just with a, a shinier wrapping. And I went, I don't know if I want any more of these. I've seen this 10, 11 times and I kind of want to see something fresh and new. And, and I think that like, why hasn't anyone designed Jason like this? And why hasn't anyone done it like that? And so, you know, I was one of those fans that complained and I was just like, well, you know, I want to see it a specific way. So instead of complaining and expecting another filmmaker who's built their entire career, trying to get to that point so they can direct a Friday the 13th dictate how they're supposed to do it. I decided, well, I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to take it upon myself to tell the story that I think uh, Friday the 13th could be. <laughs> and I'll see if anyone else thinks like me. But at least I'll have my movie out in the world and I'll have my sort of view of it out in the world. And I know what the fans want. So I know what not to drift away from too far. But I need to work within my boundaries and I need to figure out a way to do this because I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of equipment. And I had one actor and I had me. 
And it was sort of this cool, it was like, I only can say it was like film camp. It was like, I was, I had my yeah. day job during the day. I, I went to work five days a week at, at, at an animation studio working 10, 12 hour days. Every weekend we would go out to the forest and we would bring our equipment. And I slowly built that ghost Jason costume over time. I custom designed that mask. You know, I was doing really well in the industry. So I had cash and, you know, I called, I called around. I said, who wants to help me design a new hockey mask? And I can't tell you how many people said no. Oh, right. <laughs> finally, I got to, you know, composite effects in Louisiana you know, commonly known as CFX. And they were like, yeah, we'll do it. Brett Morris, um, you know, sculptor and, and effects artist there uh, helped design the ghost hawk based on some stuff that I had sent them. And he took some liberties and tried to work the shape into a good thing. And the ghost hawk was definitely a collaboration between, you know, the two of us. And of course, like Brett, you know, making it with his hands. And I was sort of guiding him through the process. Um, and, you know, so that was really cool to kind of create our own look. And so then all of a sudden we had our ghost Jason and ghost Jason isn't just like, Oh, let me throw this together. It was like with all the elements that had been in the films, like what do I think Jason could look like in a modern film and how cool it would look. And so we had that and we had Jason and then we had our hiker and sort of, I had always had the the idea that like, Oh, what if you went into the woods and you bumped into Jason? If it was you just one-on-one, -on -one, could you get out? Would Jason, what would happen if you got out and sort of asking all of those questions, the sort of nugget for Never Hike Alone was born. I had a few like Never Hike Alone shorts, fan shorts that I had written for fun that I sort of cobbled together and built a bigger story out. Um, we shot a trailer uh, that we debuted on May 13th, Friday the 13th in 2016 as a way to say happy Friday the 13th. Um, and we wanted to see if anyone, you know, would enjoy it. We shot in the woods, you know, we shot in pretty common areas. We shot around some cabins. Um, but we didn't have a camp yet. We didn't have any big, really, things yet. We just had a nice costume, you know, a handsome actor who could who could act. We created some sizzle footage, and we saw how people would react. Someone cut our footage into uh, a trailer with 2009, mixed up the footage, and called it Friday the 13th, 2017. And that trailer <laughs> got like 10 million views. Oh, my God. <laughs> while our trailers, like, just crossed, like, I think... I don't know, 150,000, yeah. like just recently, you know what I mean? The first trailer anyway. Yeah. And, um, but it told me that like people responded to this, like we made this with DSLRs and people thought that this was a million dollar movie. We're onto something. So we, um, in the process of making the trailer, the people who we sort of, we shot on their property, they sort of mentioned that there was an abandoned camp up the street and they showed us where it was. Um, we didn't go check it out then, but we went back a few weeks later and we actually discovered that there was an abandoned camp off the road in Big Bear where you had to take a road that's no longer on the map. You had to follow this dilapidated road that was falling apart, pulling trees off the road, all this stuff. It felt like you were going to Camp Crystal Lake. And as soon as we got up there it just and we saw this camp, which was fully intact, we were like, we got to use this. And so it became trips going up there and building parts of the camp and talking about the story and getting inspired. And so we sort of took what we had, took some ideas like the red ribbons and sort of different, you know, scenarios. We talked to friends of ours from doing the 48 hour film festival. I had met a set. I had met like a stunt group that did always did stunts for their films in the 48 hour film festival. I said, Hey, do you want to come and do the stunts for this and help us design stunts around this? Uh, you know, we have an opportunity for a high fall. I want to do some fighting and, and, you know, we are really going to make this seem real. Um, 
once we had that cobbled together, it was about crowdfunding. Our first crowdfund, um, our first crowdfund didn't even go through. You know, we raised I think twenty nine thousand dollars on that on our trailers, just the first trailer alone. Um, but we set a goal for forty, which is basically what we would have needed at the time with the film as it was at that moment. Um, and you know, we didn't get it, but we did get a bunch of private backers who came in after the Kickstarter closed and, and didn't work. And was like, you know, we'll give you money just to get this done because we believe in this project. So we used that money to shoot all fall of uh, 2016. Um, we got about half the movie shot. Over the winter of 2016, 2017, we cobbled together a new trailer, um, which was much bigger, much broader, had a lot of stunts in it, had stuff we can show. We used that trailer with the help of our executive producer, Barry J, to lure uh, Tom Matthews onto the project secretly at the time. Um, and nobody knew about it. So sorry, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it in 2017. <laughs> uh, but we we sort of said, I have this role for you. I have this new scene that I want to do. And I think you could, it's written a certain way now, but if we mm -hmm. put you in it, we're going to change it and make sure that not everybody dies. Um, and because fans would kill me if I killed Tommy. Like, yeah, I'm, oh, not, I'm not walking oh. into that. So, um, so, I, um, so what I ended up doing was... Uh, you know, we said, we'll, we're going to finish the movie. Once we finish the movie, your scene is the last scene in the film, and that's the last thing that we are going to film. That way you can, at that point, you can see what we have, and if you want to back out, you can back out. I'll, I'll take no offense, because I know this is a fan film. I know that, like, this isn't, like, the norm. Like, at the time, like, people have to remember, when we made Never Hike Alone, fan films were really in the obscure. Like, you had to be a real nerd to want to sit down and watch a fan film. Like, casual fans weren't sitting down and getting two minutes into fan films before they were like, all right, this isn't for me. Like fans could sit down and understand the love and the craft that goes into it and the story that people are trying to tell. But at the time, nobody had really seen something that was cinematic. And so when Tom saw that, that's sort of what lured him onto the project. And my, my deal with him was I'm not going to exploit him. I could go to Kickstarter the next day and say, I have Tom Matthews, raise a bunch of money. And people are going to sit for 45 minutes in this movie and then they're going to get the Tom Matthews. They're going to be kind of upset. So I think that that's kind of a steal. But if I, I don't do that, I, I go out on my own accord, I raise this money based on the skill set that we put forward as filmmakers to show fans that like we're doing this for the right reasons, I will reward them at the end of the movie with a secret cameo. And when nobody sees that coming and it pops up, it's going to have an effect on people. And that effect still lasts to this day. I think, you know, we've seen plenty of fan films come and go in the last couple of years with, you know, after Never Hike Alone made fan films cool and people are actually able to sort of raise money for them, you know, even Never Hike in the Snow, it's a much more expensive affair. Everything is so much more slicker in Never Hike Alone. Yeah. But the experience of Never Hike Alone, I mean, of Never Hike, the experience of watching Never Hike Alone and Never Hike in the Snow were just two different things, you know, and, and sort of the way it lasts with people. It's not just how good the movie is. Over time, I think more people will enjoy the movie, but at the time, like Never Hike Alone, we hadn't had a Friday the 13th in, in, 12, in like 10 years or something like that. Friday the 13th got canceled this year. We didn't think the fan film was gonna be any good and it's good at least it's good it's, it's decent it doesn't have a lot of deaths but hey this has been pretty entertaining how do they do this stuff with that budget oh and they had tom matthews oh this has made my front like october 13th <laughs> you know october 2017 like people were like wow yeah. i can't believe somebody just did that so then you know we we made that film we rode that wave and i talked to tom 
he introduced me to Vinnie Guastafara and we talked about the sequel. And I've had Never Hike Alone 2, the sequel, in my head for a long time. Like even as I was finishing Never Hike Alone 1, I knew what I wanted to do for Never Hike Alone 2. I just knew that it was a tall order because it was a bigger world. It wasn't one person. It wasn't something that we could go off on the weekends and do as friends and stuff like that. Like sort of life had changed. Like, you know what I mean? Like you get to make one movie like that in your life. And then trying to convince people to come out and work for free and give up time and donate stuff. It like, eventually you got to respect their time and realize that like, this isn't their life mission. Like they have other jobs, they have other things. So it becomes my responsibility to go to crowdfunding raise money so i can go get the people that when people invest in never hike alone their money's being invested in artists who are delivering giving them the things that they like about our films like the good cinematography the good effects the good things like that's helping our our teammates you know our team get things that they need and so you know when never hike in the snow came around and we had that um the unfortunate part with never hike in the snow was that like now people had expectations and we had sort of pitched that we were going to do a series of films. You know, there was going to be one after the other, after the other, after the other. Unfortunately, when we finished Never Hike in the Snow, COVID happened. So we we didn't get to have the fun that we had with Never Hike Alone. It was sort of like a series of letdowns of, oh, the world is shutting down. Oh, we can't do a live screening. Oh, we can't like show this one and then have the next one lined up a few weeks later like we originally planned so that way it felt more like an episodic series that you were watching so this wasn't something you had to wait two or three years for that like you sat down on a one saturday and then like five saturdays later you got the next one so it wasn't that much of a wait there was a cliffhanger but there was something right on the end and honestly like with the sneak preview um the sneak preview was is the next thing like that's what it was supposed to lead into is that sneak preview that we did um and then there's a scene that goes off from that that we're going to film in the spring um and the whole opening act and, it, and that goes all the way through like a large portion of the front half of the script and so it would have answered a lot of things for people in the next entry in never hike alone 2 well now we're doing a feature film so instead of doing the three episodes we squashed it down to the feature film we waited for um the you know, the pandemic to get over so we didn't have to pay a bunch of extra COVID fees. And now we're in a position where we built our fan base from a time where we barely raised 20 grand in our first campaign before anybody really knew what fan films were. And now we're up to like $237,000. Yeah. Um, that's a long, long time. I and mean, when we found, you know, fans like you who came along the way and started jumping in and stuff like that. So when, you know, when fans sort of like, had a little bit of backlash for never hiking in the snow. Like, Oh, it's only 25 minutes. Oh, it's only this. You're leaving this cliffhanger. What is, why is this happening? Why is this happening? We were sort of left in this position where it was like, you know, like people had big expectations and they wanted a full movie and we had a plan. And like, this is all we could do because this is all we could do. Mm. It's still good work, but, and even though the cinematography is better, the, you know, the, the makeup effects are, are, there's more of it. It's brutal. There's like lots of like nice twists and turns. The experience of like, oh, I wanted more and I, I just want to see the end now and having to wait and have that sort of had a different effect versus like people never knew if they were going to get another Never Hike Alone. And the only reason why I jumped on this journey and I've been doing this for six years is because what other opportunity in my life am I going to have to work on a Friday the 13th? film you know there's a new series coming out now there's a new yeah. film that's been announced i haven't been called you know even if i waited this entire time and i said well you know i'll just go work on it like 
the best I could have ever achieved was working as a, you know, production coordinator or manager on one of these films and not having a say in what's going on. And so like to have a say in what's going on in Friday the 13th, to touch fans enough to say that they'll support me to keep my stories going. Um, and the fact that I get to work with Tom Matthews and Vinny Guasafara and not even like just tell a fan film, but actually be able to take elements from the actual films and finish a storyline that I feel yeah. like many fans have been waiting to see finished. Like, if Tommy put Jason in the lake in part six and Tina undoes it in part seven and the kids in the boat undo it in part eight and there's time after that movie where Jason's been washed out to sea and time has gone on, what has Tommy been doing? And how does Tommy feel? And what if Jason came back to Crystal Lake after all that and yeah. became a recluse, became more of like a part two Jason, even though he was undead and got better at hiding. And it's helped me sort of as a fan reconcile all of the questions I've had as a fan over the years. It's been my outlet to be like, okay, so all these things with the, I've sort of watched these movies enough and I've run my finger along the storylines enough to un, like, to read it like Braille and be like, I feel like all of these storylines could be summed up like this. Yeah. You could get everything here sort of like, in a way, palette cleanse all the, the the weirdness, especially from the new line stuff, because we pretend like the new line stuff doesn't exist. But sort of palette cleanse the series because you bring it into a modern setting where we just treat like those events happened in the past. The way they were depicted in the 80s movies are like a fever dream of somebody trying to remember their experience of what it was like going through Jason. And maybe their experience is like a little different from somebody else, but that's because they had a different trauma. And that's just sort yeah. of how it went. But now we're sort of taking it and sort of pulling back a little bit of the mystique, a little bit, and a little bit of the campiness, and a little bit of like washing over things and being a little goofy. Um, we're sort of showing like the actual reality. Like, what if there was an undead revenant living in your forest, like Bigfoot, and you couldn't find it, but it was picking people off? And how does how does a town reconcile that? How does a, a sheriff run his town? How does somebody who knows that the monster is out there deal with that, even though they can't find the monster? And what sort of like what sort of atmosphere would that create? And so, as a storyteller and as a fan of Friday the Thirteenth, that's what drove my passion to want to say you know oh well never hike alone was enough now i'm gonna go do original stuff and go from there like original stuff aside like of course i want to get to that but i have the rest of my life for that the only time i'm ever going to be able to work with tom matthews and beneath lost far and not have any studio interference and be able to tell the story that i want to tell fans are backing me now why would i walk away from that yeah. you know when i'm done with this hopefully fans follow me into my original stuff and they help me you know you know, uh, fund some original projects and we won't have to raise as much because we're going to, we're going to start small, but it's sort of, I feel like I owe it to myself and I owe it to fans to finish. Like I, like I could have easily walked away after never hiking the stone and been like, well, you know, it's going to take too long. And, you know, I know you guys are kind of upset by this. Um, we didn't get it all the way done, you know? So it was sort of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, personally for me, I thought never hiking the snow. I, cause, I don't know whether maybe I just read it differently to other people, mm -hmm. but I, I'm fairly sure I read that it was going to be 25. It was advertised well ahead of time. So I, yeah. Like, <laughs> and it was supposed to be shorter and we did make it longer yeah. and we added more effects and like, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't like we didn't deliver, like that's a half hour of television right there. Yeah. And people are saying like, you raised all that money. Do you know how much a half hour of television costs <laughs> yeah. to make? 
watch a TV show that's a half hour and especially an action horror show. And you tell especially me, you tell me how they make that for less than less than a hundred grand. Oh yeah. Exactly. I, I dare you. I mean, to go through all that, you know, do all the pre-production, buy all the materials, actually shooting it, getting the insurance, getting the the permits, get, you know, lodging for people, getting, uh, you know, we had to have a, an RV on set because we were shooting in winter. I needed to give my place to people to warm up and I needed to give makeup a place to do their work because they can't do it out in the freezing cold because makeup won't set if it's cold. It has yeah. to be warm. So we invested in things that built us a functioning base camp for a set and it's not the stuff that's on screen but it allowed us to do the stuff that was on screen and then on screen yeah we got like a cool crane that we could do some stuff with you know obviously the axe kill there was a lot invested in that there was a lot of pieces of that the deadhead mark doll do you understand how intricate that doll was like yeah. and that body was like that face that was amazing work by oh, Mark Hewitt. i just watched just in in, in you know for Kind of prep for today and everything. I rewatched everything. It was on the Never High channel, so not never on the Warm Stomp channel, so that I could, you know, I had everything in my head ready to go. But yeah, that that shot where we see Mark and he's saying bye to his mum out the window, and then the the shot changing frame to the dead Mark in the Jason. It's like it's identical, and it's like for me, that's my favorite shot of the whole film because mm -hmm. it just just hits you straight away. You're like, that's oh. That's my favorite. Um, uh, that's one of my favorite transitions that we've done. Because I, I think one of the things I, I realize is that, like, you start to create sort of um, a style and some of our cross dissolves are fun. Like in Never Hike Alone, we had the cross dissolve from Jason to the moon in the eye. Yes. Which was a really good, people really liked that. I thought that was kind of cool. And so I try to look at those elements and be like, how do I repeat that same element? Keep it as something that's a signature move, but do it differently. And so that was really inspired by that. And then I had seen between Never Hike Alone and then I had seen Hereditary. And one of my, my favorite shots in the movie is when they just cut to Charlie's head on the side of the road. <laughs> and you, and it sort of like cements how dead she is. It's like, it was bad enough that like there's a headless corpse in the back of the car when you cut to her young yeah. child head just lying in the road with ants on it, it was like, oh, this poor fucking kid. And so I wanted to do that with Mark and make people feel like, oh, this poor kid. You know, you spend this, you spend the, like what I, we actually did a screen for, um, for the ghost cut last night on a, on a, a group of like shutter fans. And, um, you know, it's always so fun to like see people like cheer the first death. Oh, that's a great death. Oh, you got him right in the chopper, like blah, blah, all this stuff. And they're like, yeah, I got him blood in the snow. And then we spend the rest of the film sort of like saying like, oh, do you really feel that great about this mom losing her child? Do you really yeah. feel like great about this like pretty decent kid, like getting his life taken away from him? So, um, you know, what, what's wrong with you? And yeah. it's sort of what I wanted to do with the film is ask, like, what's wrong with us? Like, why do we cheer the deaths of all these people? Like, do you understand how much carnage Jason has caused? And part of the Never Hike Alone journey is, is sort of even Jason internalizing that. It's been so long. He's gone through so much. And he's starting to realize that, like, all these bodies have piled up into nothing. He's still walking around. He's still stuck on Earth. He's still carrying on the curse and it's not bringing him any closer to his mother. It's not giving him any sort of peace. And he really does just want to be left alone. And, you know, the only problem is, is that he's an undead revenant. He yeah. has a job to do. 
he has a curse that drives his his will and when people come into his his camp he does have something to protect he's got his secrecy to protect he's got his you know his mother to protect and so when that's threatened and he's thrust into action he doesn't really like he just reacts because that's what he's built to do that's what he's here for um but you like i think with the disappear music video we sort of analyzed like sort of you see it in him like he went through all this he did his jason stuff but it didn't really yeah fulfill at the him. end he just sits down and he's like ah peace again <laughs> they're yeah. all dead and he's done his job and you could just see like in the disappear music video when the kids arrive and he's kind of just sits there thinking oh here we go again <laughs> yeah he, he's got a little bit of like that marv from uh guy uh hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy you know what i mean he's sort of yeah. like he's just like this he's sort of like clint eastwood from grand torino He's just sitting on his porch, like, God damn it, get off me. <laughs> you know, and he's just I, I don't I don't see Jason the way I used to. And I don't think that like Jason celebrates death. I mean, when you really analyze like everything we learn about like character analyzation and like looking at, at characters' backgrounds and playing the character and trying to get in the mindset and do that mind and study work, um sort of like just turned me on to this like new Jason. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that he was new, it's just that like he's evolved like characters that sort of stay the same can be fun. Like Johnny Lawrence and Cobra Kai, Mm -hmm. like the fact that like he hasn't changed as part of the lore, but I think that like Friday the 13th, as it was as a product, Jason as a character, I think part of it for some of us fans, it was getting stale because we had so many films of the same thing. And the every time it came out as the same thing, it was every time you make a copy of something, it sort of diminishes, right? And so by removing the copy and paste element of the Friday the 13th and looking at Jason as a character and telling stories with him as a character, putting in him different movies. So taking Jason the character, putting him in 127 hours, taking Jason the character and putting him in, you know, a crime thriller, taking Jason and putting him in Never Hike Alone 2, which is sort of like, an epic monster battle like this is like a kaiju battle in my head the way i'm sort of like building it because you have tommy one kaiju the good kaiju and you have jason the bad kaiju and they just happen to be humans we're not going to have buildings and like you know little sets and stuff like that but there's sort of an element of the way that two forces move towards each other when it's a versus movie um it's not like your typical slasher but this is the most slasher we're ever going to get to be like now i finally get to make the friday the 13th film that if you had given me a million dollars in day one i would have never made never hike alone i would have made a traditional friday the 13th slasher you know what i mean yeah so necessity led me to new ideas but now that i can kind of grow it in there since it grew out of new ideas now you can see this sort of thinking of how you take the friday the 13th formula and grow that up for a modern audience and you know these are the things that i think I complained about 10 years ago or however many years ago when, when 2009 came up, but now I'm saying, here's my theory and I want to put this up to the test. And yes, if you don't like it, you should tell me about it and we can have a discussion about it. It's part of the fun, but, um, but I'm really adamant in the fact that I think that like, I still feel like Friday the 13th missed a huge opportunity in 2009. Mm-hmm. I think Paramount missed a huge opportunity. Fans missed out on the fact that, what happened in 2009 should have been at least a trilogy. 
we should have had movies all the way up. They should have been trying to make movies all the way up until 2017. And they really sat on that property and they dragged fans through the mud and they, they passed up on a really good project in the middle of their, uh, the David Bruckner's 3d project um, with an undead Jason. I mean, a parent, a paramount platinum dunes, undead Jason, that would have, that thing would have been something. And David yeah. Bruckner is a fantastic director. Um, he's gone on to make some of the most, uh, I would say classy and well-told horror movies of the last like 10 years. So, you know, I, I feel like, you know, huge opportunity missed there. It'll always be something that Friday the 13th fans talk about is the lost years. Um, but that created our opening for Never Hike Alone to happen, really. I mean, it, there was one, like we were the balance. Like that was the negative. The positive was fans rose up. We released Never Hike Alone. More fans got inspired. They released all of their films. And so for the first time in history, fans were seeing storylines that were never going to be addressed, addressed across the board from different styles of the filmmakers and different types of filmmakers. You know, everybody with their own view on Friday the 13th, their own view on Jason. And it showed a real sort of um, diversity in the fan base. And I think, you know, if anything, studios should learn from it. Studios should, should learn and they should they should look at these fan films and say, like, what is it about these films that cost a fraction of what we spent on all these other movies that like people just absolutely shit all over all the time? How was this able to garner such a big audience? You would think that they would want to sort of look under the hood yeah. and and want to and sit down and be like, let me tell you about these characters and all the potential that each of them have. You know, these are real people. These aren't caricatures. And if you take them out of that caricature nature and you put them into like real world, you you open up a broad opportunity to tell story on Friday the 13th like you haven't before. That's what I'm looking forward to in the Peacock series. The fact that we're going to dive into who these characters are, what drove them, sort of see them go through everyday life and see how a series of circumstances led up to what eventually created their character because there is a good backstory with Pamela, her life. There's a good backstory of what happened with Jason, what happens during this time and, you know, what happens in the years before Jason's caught. I think that there's a lot of tension and story to be milked with leading up to the tent poles of the movie, which is why does Pamela end up killing? Yeah. Why does Jason, how does Jason come back? How does, you know, how does, you know, why is Jason driven to finally come out of hiding after all these years and commit mass murder and go on this murder spree and things like that? There's lots of cool sort of, you know, decisions these characters can make. Where in the eighties, they're like, ah, they just kill him. You know, now today you can sort of, you People can still do that. Slow a burn, drag it out a bit, not drag it out, but give us those finer details, you know? Yeah. But I think that like, you still get what you want, which are the scenes where people get, brutally murdered with great visual effects but in between the characters just they're more entertaining for a modern audience whereas like our cookie cutter characters from the past just don't cut it anymore like yeah. the caricatures pull people out of movies like you just kind of know you're watching a movie versus like oh these are real people and they're really in danger so for fans like me who want to go to a horror film and get scared who want to feel the tension the more grounded and not, it doesn't have to be likable, but the more grounded and intense the the setting is and the situations are, mm -hmm. the more I enjoy it because I'm watching like, oh my God, what's going to happen next versus like, okay, yeah, so this is the part where, yep, yeah, okay, yep, yeah, classic, class, you know, just a bunch of like yeah, retreads yeah, of things yeah, that we've seen yeah. before. Um, <laughs> 
and or even just like watching the films over and over again because they're fun to watch it for as like therapy um but like i've always wanted to see that one friday the 13th that after all these years of, of studying the fan base studying the films what could you make now now that you can look back and sort of like redirect it and so I don't know, that's sort of what Never Hike Alone is to me to a certain degree. Yeah, and really with Never Hike Alone, I mean, it's 3.5, 3.6 million views. On, Nine. 3.9 million views, sorry. Um, <laughs> a lot of fans, including myself, would really class Never Hike Alone as and Never Hike in the Snow as, as canon, as, as actual Friday storytelling that fits in with, with the timeline. And, uh, you know, it, uh, people who kind of do ranking episodes on YouTube, all that kind of stuff, they would include Never Hike in there because it's so well done, so well respected. I mean, Thank did you. you ever think that that was that the kind of the goal? Did you think that this would get taken on this new life of its own at the time? No, I think like my highest aspiration at the time was I think one of the Friday the 13th releases, they included a couple of fan films in the, in the special edition uh, section of it. Mm -hmm. Um and I was like, if we can make something good enough that, like, if they do another box set and they reach out and say, hey, we want to put you in the box set, I was like, that would be, like, the cat's pajamas to me. I never thought people were going to sort of react to Never Hike Alone the way they did. I think I had a little bit more of an inclination as we were getting closer. I knew Tom was going to come out and sort of all these other things. Like, I had a real – I, I kind of realized that, like, this has an opportunity to really, like, hit people. I wonder if it's going to hit them the way that it hits me when I watch the movie because I was just so fresh to it then um the reaction has been way more than i expected um it was i mean for all the reasons that you can just say out loud like fan film friday the 13th low budget one person no kills um just go down the list of all the things and that are working against us and say i hope we just get out of here with our heads still intact and people don't hurt us too bad i gotta go screen in front of the people in front of like i took this film to telluride horror show is where i premiered it um we went live on youtube when we went live at at telluride and it was nerve-wracking because here i am at this festival where they're showing real movies i mean these movies are getting bought and put into the theaters and they're made by filmmakers who like greg mclean was there the director from wolf creek um other other um i can't remember who was exactly at that fest but there were lots of people that were you know interested this is my first impression mm -hmm. and so to see people react to it in such a positive way was overwhelming to say the least i was i was definitely moved um it's been an adventure ever since i've had the opportunity to now travel the country if it wasn't for COVID, i would have been traveling the world you you know the original yeah. plan for never hiking the snow was i was going to be in europe i was going to uh -huh. I was either going to premiere it in London or I was going to premiere it in France, in Paris. And um, because we had fans out there that were going to host screenings and they were like, we want to host it and we'll bring you out. And I was like, bring me out. Like, this is going to be great. I've never been to Europe before. I can't wait. And uh, obviously we know how that worked out. I still haven't been to Europe, um, but Never Hike Alone 2 is a different beast. And I feel like, Never Hike Alone 2 is sort of the reward for fans that have stuck with us mm -hmm. because I've been, I, I wouldn't have done this unless I could do it right. 
and I obviously can't do everything that I had in my original plan, which some of it I kind of like was hoping that studios would pick it up before the mm -hmm. lawsuit and give us an opportunity to make it with a, with a feature film budget. When that wasn't going to happen and the lawsuit sent us into a tailspin, that's when I had to figure out how do I make that big idea into smaller ideas or how do I get those big ideas for a lot less money, but still get sort of the same the same sort of result and you know since then just like we did in our first movie we've been continuing to get better at filmmaking been working on other people's films um been helping other sets and i've been learning through working with other people picking up good habits recognizing bad habits um knowing who to work with who not to work with um who to trust who not to trust because it's <laughs> been it's been a wild ride of like you know any venture you go in life you're going to meet people who are in it to win it and you're going to meet people who see your success and they want a piece of it they don't understand how you got it and they didn't but now you know they're going to go get theirs and you know they'll bring you on and act buddy buddy and then all of a sudden like you realize that like oh look that person who thinks i'm a piece of crap is now using my Indiegogo formula to run their own campaign. Um, and they're contacting people that I put them in contact with. And it just seems odd that like, I'm a bad guy to some people. Um, when mostly what I've done to everybody I've met is introduce them to all the wonderful people that I've met. I try to bring people together. That's my goal. Um, my number one rule when doing all of this stuff is like, you got to treat your crew good. Um, you got to invest in your film. You got to put work in your film. And if, you know, and, you know, your motives have to be you love cinema. You want to tell story, not that you want to be famous on Facebook. Yeah. Because everything, I think some people see what I've done as like, oh my God, like you must be so famous or this. And like, not even close. You know, I go to a convention, people know what Never Hike Alone is. That's cool. Um, but for the most part, most people don't know what this stuff is. It's very intrinsic to the to the horror world and um even in the horror world i'm a i know i recognize i'm a very small piece of it there are so many more directors and actors who have been doing this for decades that have warranted sort of big fandoms and they've done it professionally and not just a fan film but they were licensed real they're the real deal and so i've always sort of at the same time had that humble aspect of being like i'm a, you know i made a fan film like i don't expect to like I'm not going to expect someone to pay me money for an autograph. I'm not going to try to milk this for money so I can become lucrative off of fan film. And the only thing I want is to create more people who want to support this journey mm -hmm. and will trust me to deliver something. And that's my, my, my sole goal. I'm not in it to like, like the traveling's nice, but what I really love about the traveling isn't going and being recognized for anything, but the fact that I get to sit in a room and watch people react to the hard work that me and my team do. That's the best part. Being able to be in a theater, see people react to it, get more people's eyes on it um, and see them enjoy it is, is the experience. Not people recognizing me, not people sort of doing that side of it, which is nice. And, and, you know, I have, you know, some fans that have been really gracious to me over the years and I really, and, and, but I've built friendships with them because they've supported me when, you know, not, no one supported me. And before everything hit, they were there and they were sort of, you know, cheering us on and they still cheer us on and it feels very grassroots. And so those are the types of relationships that I really sort of look for when, um, when I'm out there and, you know, I'm always gracious when people have watched the film or they're just a fan. Um, it's really humbling. Like we actually, um, 
I'm actually in Massachusetts right now. I, I was working in LA for about 15 years, but I've been in Massachusetts prepping for Never Hike Alone um, just so I could concentrate on it and take a breath before I got into this big venture. And I was doing some flyers for a convention that I'm doing next week. And as I'm doing it, the guy's looking at the screen. He goes, Never Hike Alone. He's like, you had something to do with this movie? And I was like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I made it. He goes, what? I love this movie. And so every now and then you bump into somebody and you're like, oh, you actually know what this is? You're a horror fan? Cool. Yeah. And like, I think, it, you know, it, there's there's some fun, it, you know, it's fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like every now and then it's, it's kind of cute. But, um, you know, I never really expected any of that stuff. All I wanted to do was, honestly, the only thing I wanted to do was present a case for my theory about Jason. And just have people respond to it. Just be like, you're right. Like, <laughs> Jason is pretty good this way. Like, we don't oh, need yeah. all that other stuff. You know what I mean? Like, you prove you, the theory proved out. Like, the like for me, the result, the results in in the work are what are what really kind of drive me. And the fact that like, not that people want to know who I am, but the people will look at what we say about Jason and say, yeah, I want more of that. Because if there's other fans out there that want more of that, there's a chance that we could get more content like it and at a higher level. And so even though the studios aren't doing it, now the fans are supporting this type of storytelling at a higher level by just supporting us. That's awesome. Could I, you've kind of touched on there. I was going to ask actually about the design of your Jason, the Never Hike Jason. Mm -hmm. He's kind of like, for me anyway, he's got like the, the menace and the pace of Ted White's from part mm -hmm. four, and then also kind of the zombie-like of CJ in part six. It's like a perfect blend of the two. So like mm -hmm. how, but it's also got its own twist as well. It's got its own, like his own design, his own twist. So how did you come up with your, I suppose, Jason? Because in each film, Jason is different and the Never Hike yeah. Jason is unique in its own way as well. Yeah, the only one where Jason is really the same is uh, parts uh, three through five. You know, it's the green top, you know, mm. the, the grayer tan pants, um, the boots and the mask. Um, and obviously, like it progresses because it gets damaged. But, you know, the dream Jason, Ted White and, and Richard Brooker, those were the ones that I felt like acting wise. Those were the creepiest Jasons. Ted White bursting through the doors. Richard Brooker chasing uh, Trish. I mean, uh, Chris uh, Higgins around. Um, I always liked that mentality. But I also like the fact that like. Undead Jason was a Terminator. He couldn't be stopped. He became a little bit more stoic. He, you know, mm. worked, moved a little bit more stiff. And I sort of just, you know, imagined a world where part eight sort of reset the entire spectrum. Because by the end of that movie, he's lost his now like second or third mask. Um, and his, you know, clothing is tattered and torn. He's got to start fresh. Um, in the in Jason X, they started the trend of giving Jason a jacket. You know, it's very light in Jason X. It's a very thin coat. It's really kind of tattered and torn. Mm. Sort of sits on top of what he's wearing as a top. In Freddy versus Jason, they had this. It almost looks like he's wearing a burlap sack as a jacket, <laughs> and it's just big and it's overflowing. They call it the hobo coat. He looks like a big lunky hobo. And this is around the time, especially starting with Jason goes to hell, that I was like. Yo, Jason looks like ass. Like, and Jason goes to hell. He's in, he's in the blue jumpsuit. His pants are tucked in. His head's bloated out over the mask. Um, he seemed bloated. Like, yeah, he just seemed like sort of like he's soak. Did you soak in water and like yeah. bloat? 
Like I like stuck to his face and yeah, I like yeah. that tall, slender kind of look to Jason that Kane brought in part eight and part seven. Um, you know, even the hulking nature of Jason in part six, like even that, like he's big, which is cool. But honestly, like if you think about it, Jason is withering, especially after getting hit with nuclear waste. Like he's sort of thinning out. Um, and then in 2009, they did another jacket that was, again, it was a trench coat almost. It was so long. Everything was like over the top. You know what I mean? Like you got a machete, add 10 more inches to that thing. Like you got a long, add longer coat, big coat. And it was sort of big and sort of like, now it was getting to the point where it was cartoonish. You mm-hmm. know, Freddy versus Jason in 2009, Jason, they're both pretty cartoonish. I don't see them as like, it, there's some good things about the costumes, but I just felt that it was just too much. And so with Ghost Jason, I wanted to simplify. I loved the green and tan, that color aspect ratio. They went away from that. He had a brown, he was brown and brown, and he was black all over in, in 2009. I wanted to go back to green and uh, green and tan, earth colors, colors of the forest, something that will allow him to sort of blend in if he's walking around in the forest. I like the concept of the wearing the sweater underneath the shirt or wearing some type of sweater. So like trying different things and, and, you know, waffle knit Henley's um, looked the best. We actually started cutting the, cutting the, the, the collars off to give it a more rugged look. And we put like another green shirt underneath. So you had like green, neutral gray, green with some like blood stains on it, which is really nice. So the blood stains really showed through in the gray, um, you know, duck Brown pants. So they were like, bold and dark and then military boots that had smooth soles on the bottom sort of like so they looked like the boot the work boots from uh from part seven it was sort of like i mean from part uh three and four so it was really sort of taking the modern look and saying if you applied that to the the sears work shirt and the dickies pants from that era what is what does the combination of those two looks look like together and that's where the ghost jason look came from from the head down um not a huge fan of Jason having hair, even wispy little hairs sort of sometimes throw me off. I like the bald look. Um, again, I went to CFX. They had the, um, I can't remember the name of it now, uh, the hood that they have, which is like the one you just get. I mean, they have it like it's just a straight up Jason hood. I can't remember. Deformed hood. It's called Deformed. Um, and so I had them do that. Since Jason was undead in our films, I had them color our appliances uh, zombie style. But I was like, let's go gray you know, gray to sort of the tone of the shirt, gray skin. I kind of have this theory that like all of Jason's blood that's in his body is rotten and black. And so that's flowing through him still. Like, and we see that never alone, the black blood that comes out of his neck and mask. Um, And the uh, sort of that, and then with the hockey mask, it was like, I wanted to make a new hockey mask because technically Jason's hockey mask had been destroyed and people always look at our film and go, Hey, where's the, where's the ax mark? You took it away. Where, where's the, where's the face damage? It's like, because this mask hasn't had any damage happen to it. It's brand new. It's still 30 years old in our story, but it's brand new for Jason as far as him wearing it. Hmm. So in my head, I started to think about where could Jason get a hockey mask? The only place Jason can get a hockey mask if he's returned to Camp Crystal Lake is Camp Crystal Lake. Okay, who would be bringing a hockey mask to Camp Crystal Lake? Well, let's think about the history of of Crystal Lake. It was in service up until 1958 when the two kids were murdered. In 1963 and 67, I believe they tried to reopen the camp. And so there's an opportunity within the 60s to say at some point, the Christie's were coming back to the camp 
they were trying to reopen it. Maybe one year they were trying to reopen a winter camp. So they bought a bunch of hockey equipment for the kids. They put it up in the shelving. Um, they're going to get ready to do it. Pamela shows up. She poisons the water. She lights a fire. Whatever which one happened in each year. Whatever equipment they got, saved in storage. So years when Jason came back and he's building his costume, there are masks there that he could find and pick one and put it on because he doesn't want to look at his decrepit, decaying face in mirrors. Um, it sort of freaks him out in a way. Like, again, going back to the point, like, when we watch Friday the 13th, the originals, Jason has a very uh, cyclical um, journey in each movie. Mm -hmm. He is disturbed in some way, shape, or form. He is thrust into action to kill a bunch of people. He kills a bunch of people until there's only one person left. And that person kills him at the end of the movie and sends him back to the afterlife. And then in the next movie, something brings him back from the afterlife and the cycle repeats. And so at the end of part eight, since there were no other movies that sort of happened afterward that we could reference that I want to reference, like, mm -hmm. you know, Jason goes to hell, which sort of changes the lore too much for me. Uh, Freddy versus Jason, which just feels like it takes place in its own universe. Um, that this was sort of a, an opportunity for Jason to break his own cycle, to realize that there was a time between part one and part two where Jason didn't actively seek to murder all the time. He was more in hiding and trying to stay hidden. And so what if Jason went back to that mentality? He's injured. He's weak. He's recovering. He's trying to regain strength. He's like Voldemort. You know what I mean? Like he's just trying to build back enough power um, so he can just there. And he starts to question like, oh, my God. Why am I still here? I've been shot. I've been chopped. I've been melted. I've been set on fire. I've been choked. I've been, you know, all these things. And I keep coming back. What am I doing here? What is going on? It doesn't feel good when I get drowned in the lake. It doesn't feel good when I get set on fire. I still feel this pain. I still feel this agony. I still, you know, see what I do to these kids. Like, because ultimately... I'm just a 12 year old boy who drowned and has somehow turned into this killing monster. And I have to carry this on. Maybe, maybe I'm not doing this right. Maybe I have to change. And so that's when Jason becomes the Jason and disappear. That's sort of what the underlying tone in Jason is. There is that Jason is starting to realize that this cycle of violence that he's been on, even though it is revenge and it is getting revenge, that it's not fulfilling anything. And that's what, what's the lesson we learn about revenge ultimately in life is the fact that like you can get revenge on your enemies. You can kill the person who killed, you know, the person you loved, but that doesn't bring the person you loved back. And it doesn't fill the void in your have until you sort of work through your own shit. And I think that like Jason in a way, not to say he's going to therapy, but Jason is starting to realize what's important to him. What's important mm -hmm. to him is his mother and his peace. And so if he has those two things intact, life is okay. And with Never Hike in the Snow, we show an, an, you know, an example of now a Jason that only acts when he has to. Why does Jason act? Because he was accidentally caught on film. And when mm -hmm. we see Jason sort of process what has happened when he looks at the photo, we see that he, if you sense it, there's a sense of remorse there. He, he messed up. He's not mad because he's mad. He's mad because he got himself caught on camera. He almost broke the own system. They're going to come back. You know what I mean? I had to do this. I had to kill this kid. And so what happens? The curse manifests his mother to comfort him. 
and he goes into that trance and that sort of puts him in that stasis of like, Oh, you know, I think in the, in the sense of like, in a sense, the curse is almost like the deal with the devil, the, the curses and the evil forces that are keeping Jason alive and keeping him there or keeping him killing, you know, have sort of like manifested his mother or have allowed the spirit of his mother to contact him so they could keep control of the monster before it gets, you know, before it goes out of control and, you know, ruins, ruins the great thing that they have, you know, being able to collect souls or whatever this like entity is. I'm never going <laughs> to go into that stuff, but it's sort of like, it's, there's gotta be something here. Um, yeah. And so there's that. And so when Kyle McLeod comes along, what his entry to the Friday, the th and so with Mark's death, you get sort of an overview of how does the town react when someone goes missing? What is a circumstance in which a character en encounters Jason Voorhees, gets killed by Jason Voorhees, and then is made to disappear, just like the music video. That's what inspired going into Never Hike in the Snow. Um, how do these people disappear, and how does Jason get away with it? How does Tommy not find him yet? And what are the circumstances that are in his way? We show that the cops are standing in Tommy's way. They don't believe that Jason still exists. Rick doesn't believe it. Rick was locked in a jail cell. He never saw Jason. He just saw the carnage and Tommy walking away a hero. And that never sat well with him. So he's been watching him all these years. And when people go missing, never finds Jason, but Tommy's still around. And Tommy seems to be adamant about people going after Jason. I wonder if he's trying to play hero again. Mm. And he's creating this false flag scenarios for him to sort of like be the hero in town. And, J and, and Rick's sort of jealous of him. And so we see how Tommy trying to do the right thing, trying to go and, you know, and, and at least bring some semblance of like closure to all this story, keeps having the cops run into him. And what happens? Someone new, someone who's not as, you know, well-versed in the story of Jason Voorhees, because it's been 25 years since anyone's seen him, gets caught up in the story, wants to do the right thing. Deputy Mabry goes and searches the camp instead of Tommy. And because he's not prepared and he doesn't understand what he's dealing with the way Tommy does, he becomes another lost victim. And so by the time we get around to Never Hike Alone, which is, you know, three months after, you know, Never Hike in the Snow, and we have a character of Kyle McLeod going to camp, what changes the story now is that for the first time in this 25 years, you can imagine there's been maybe two dozen Mark Hills. Mm -hmm. There hasn't yeah. been one Kyle McLeod. Because Kyle McLeod escapes. And that is what Jason was so afraid of in Never Hike in the Snow, was word getting out that he exists. Because if the word gets out, the pitchforks and the torches are coming. And so at the end of Never Hike Alone, we leave, we leave audiences with that sense of this story isn't over. Kyle survived, but Jason is following them. Yeah. And he's going to finish his story. Because now he's got nothing to lose. And that creates a very different Jason. That's why I'm very excited about the Jason from Never Hike Alone 2. Because unlike the Jason we've had, which has sort of been teasing fans, slow burning him, he's been very sort of, you know, he's been like a sniper. You know what I mean? Like he picks his prey, he gets the prey, and then he disappears into the forest and you never know he was there. Which is the Jason that scares me. That was the Jason I was scared of when I was a kid. Again, and never finding me. You know what I mean? That's what I was afraid of. And so now we're going back to that Jason that has has nothing to lose. His rage meter the camera who does a YouTube channel. Um, and now he's gonna make him pay 
because he's he's uncovered the secret. He has the secret of his existence with him. And Tommy knows that he's there. And he, after all these years of hiding from Tommy, Tommy's seen him and he had his opportunity to kill Tommy and he didn't get it. That's it. You know what? I'm not getting any, I'm not any happier than I was with my peace and my mom. I'm going kamikaze mission into town and I'm taking out, I'm taking down as many people as I can. Screw this town, screw this curse, screw everything. Like all bets are off. Everybody's dying. And so now we get to see Jason un, unhinged and we're going to see him do some things that we're going to, he's going to show off. Like he's been holding back. You know what I mean? Like we're going to see rage Hulk version of Jason finally going crazy. And in order to do that, we had to raise crazy money because mm -hmm. we need to do these effects justice. And I don't want to skimp on them. I don't want them to be, you know, half-assed. I want them to, you know, I want our team to have what they need to really showcase their skills and give fans an exciting experience to sort of, you know, when we watch Friday the 13th as kids, think about how much of it was edited and how much we don't have to edit now. Yeah. And not to say that we're going to, you know, Jason's going to bust out the bleach and the salt and start like pissing on his <laughs> victims. You know what I mean? Like taking like a hot Cleveland steamer on some dead girl's chest just to rub it in because we want to be mean spirited. Like we want to do things that make people go, Whoa, ah, like you feel it, you know, you yeah. do things and you're like, no, that, that hurts. So, and so um, we're looking forward to doing that and, and sort of upping the ante on the things that we've already done. You know, we've done it in small bits. Like we want to give you never hike alone, full length movie. This is going to be, you know, about 70, 75 minutes, I think at the end of the day. Um, and then you're going to get, you know, the kills from Never Hike in the Snow in abundance. You know, so the axe kill, the, the shotgun kill. Those were two high-profile kills, a head exploding and a yeah. mouth being split in half um, and a dead body in the middle of it. So we want to take that and, and jump off of that and really kind of build this big story where now we're getting different locations, too. We're going from the forest. We're doing stuff at a hospital. You know, we're doing stuff at the camp. All of these sets are not, we're not in just one place anymore. We can just keep going back for free. Like we got to pay, you know, this has become a big production, but because fans have supported us over the year, years. And, you know, since I started making Never Hike Alone, I actually left animation. I started working on more live action sets, professional live action sets, studying to become, you know, not only a better director, but a better producer and a better AD and a better, you know, just crew person just a film worker just being able to be a set know the ins and outs of it and know how to make everybody's lives easier versus like trying to like always making the same mistakes all the time um you know that that journey has led to this it's it, all of this experience is coming together i'm giving fans you know the best ver like Vinny from 2017 god bless him for being able to make it all the way through never hike alone with the lack of knowledge that i had but i, I listened enough and i trusted my team enough to get to the end of that and now the more schooled version of me is now getting to tackle the much bigger story um and i you know there's probably many ways in which now i'm still unprepared and i will learn things as i make this move but i think it's just helping me take that next step because after this you know, i want to make professional you know studio films or i make high level independent films and work with teams to, to tell original stories um do short films feature films animated films um it's all going to come down to this we deliver on this film people see it as what I think it could be. If they love Never Hike Alone 1 and this becomes the next big thing and they get the, the finality, they get the conclusion they've been waiting since 2017 for, that hopefully my goal at the end of this, okay, if I get a job on a Friday the 15th, that's great. 
But you guys want to see some original stuff? There's stuff in the pipeline, and oh. we'll be ready for you there. And when I got, you know, I'm going to turn 40 this year. My my celebration for my 40th birthday is that I'm going to enter that next stage of my career to focus my 40s on original work um, and sort of finish out my fan film um, career sort of out this year, hopefully. Um, you know, it'll probably be some stuff that I still do later on in life for fun. But, you know, as far as me working on Never Hike Alone stuff, this will probably be it. Be it. Yeah. So I was going to ask, actually, so – I suppose this is a two two part question now. Just from there, um, <clears throat> firstly, I presume that from what you've just said, n this will round out the the Never Hike story. This is going to mm -hmm. be the end of that story. Mm -hmm. And um, so, how far into the process are you with Never Hike Alone Two? Is there still some things to be filmed, or is it just now in? in oh yeah, no, no. We need to film like the whole movie in in April and May. I mean, in May, yeah, April and May. Oh, um, shit. We were supposed to film it last summer. We had a bunch of scheduling conflicts that came up. Um, uh, a location fell through, and then we tried to reschedule, and then all of a sudden the the film got sort of broken out over these series of weekends that kind of went deep into the fall, and we weren't going to get what we really needed um, for for the film. And I realized that if we waited until the spring, we were going to be able to shoot two weeks straight. We were able to go out, have a full production, and that's all it was. We're not out trying to bounce from the different things and do different projects and come back and be like, wait, where did I leave that? Where did I do this? Like, literally build it all for two weeks, shoot for two weeks straight, wrap production. Then we go back to Carson, Washington. We got to finish scenes up there. So where we shot our sneak preview, that's in Carson, Washington, on this private lake that we have through mutual friends of ours, thanks to James Sweet um, and, and Carl Winery, who hooked us up with that Um that location, the Birkenfields, the people who own that property, um, you know, very much special thanks to them. We have a lot of really important work to sort of do up there. Um, part of the finale ends up up there too. We go back because that's actually the that's we haven't really shown it yet, but that's actually what we're calling the dock at Camp Crystal Lake. That's what's left of it. And so, um, and you'll see that that sort of becomes part of the story in different parts of the film. Mm -hmm. This will. Um, finish out the film. This will finish out the story. This is the finality. This isn't just one more episode. This is the whole shebang. Um, so we have to film that in, in April and May. Um, we'll wrap that up. We'll go into editorial. We'll start the post process. So we'll go through that process. Um, if opportunity presents itself, we will try to do pickups. We'll try to raise more money and shoot more scenes. I would really love to shoot a, um, a house party massacre scene where Jason's coming, you know, as he's working his way through Crystal Lake, sort of like in part six, um, as he's working his way around the woods, he keeps bumping into people. You know yeah. what I mean? And so we want to create different scenarios where Jason bumps into people. We want to bring in celebrity guests. We want to do things that'll be real fun. Um, and, and sort of, you know, really build up the body count for people and, and, but work it into the film, you know? Mm -hmm. So these were some of like the, when I came to crowdfunding to do this movie, I had to remove some scenes to make sure that we could actually afford it, um, and make sure the story still works, but fans still got what they wanted. There's still about, I think right now there's 13 deaths in the film confirmed. Um, and you know, I, I'm awesome. That's, I feel like that's, that's a good deal. number. That's a big I'm, deal. I mean. Yeah. It, that's that's a big deal for us because we usually only do one or two um and so we got a lot of, lot to do there we could get into the 20s um if we do some of these scenes because we'll do like a, we'll do some wild scenes mm -hmm. um there's even some scenes we want to add that aren't even kill scenes that are just like jason interaction scenes uh, people just seeing him sort of like walk by you know what i mean like there's <laughs> things that we can do 
that like that can really sort of like amp up the movie and give us different experiences with Jason as, as we go through. Um, we should have a, a finished product by September mm -hmm. 2023. Um, that's about when we should be rolling, rolling it off the assembly line. And honestly, with the way things go, I guarantee you we'll be exporting the final film on October 6th, October 7th, October 8th, maybe even October 12th, um, depending on, you know, if we get to that point where like, if there's still more that we can sort of like etch out and sort of crystallize and, you know, there's title work to be done. There's, you know, error checks to be made. There's different exports of the film to be done. Um, the only thing that would push us to sort of get it done even earlier, if I feel like we get everything done and I have nothing left to do, uh, that's when we'll export and we'll start getting into the Blu-ray side of things. Um, we'll start getting the Blu-ray ready. Um, I'll be working on behind the scenes materials. We have some people that are interested in doing behind the scenes um, documentary work for us. Um, one thing that I requested from sort of the fandom and see if anyone was wanting to do it was um, for the Never Hike Alone 2 Blu-ray, is that I wanted a documentary that wasn't internally shot. You know, when we shoot, you know, ourselves, we're sort of, we can't see it, really see the forest through the trees. And we're giving you a detailed account of like how we made the film. But what I'm interested in is seeing somebody tell the perspective from the outside of our group watching us work. So we can sort of get a better perspective of like, what does this really mean to people? Um, and I think that it is also a neutral eye for people to look at it and really kind of say what they really mean, other than that's just like focusing on the highlights and the good stuff and, and all those things. I think somebody can really take a hard look at us um, and and tell a story that I think other fans could relate to the way that we couldn't tell. Because we've already done two of these um, behind the scenes and they're great. But um, that outside perspective is sort of what I'm interested in as far as like somebody coming in and telling a story about us rather than us trying to tell a story about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, awesome, awesome. That's what I, I I I didn't realize it was uh, still filming. I mean, maybe I've just uh, read <laughs> read round too much, you know, because obviously the the five minute teaser was released uh, two weeks ago now. I think about last week, last week, yeah. Friday the thirteenth, last week, mm -hmm. and uh, it was awesome. Like it was okay. like that 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 kind of like say that transition where mm -hmm. Tommy jumps in the Everybody lake. Everybody loves that. Yeah. Oh, I was like, holy shit! So. Obviously, we're going to get Tommy Jarvis back. We're going to get Tom Matthews back. And just a quick story, which I think you'll probably like. I met Tom Matthews at a convention a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And I was wearing my uh, Never Hike in the Snow shirt. I was in the nice. queue to get my photo op. And, as soon, and it was a photo op with him and CJ. Um, hmm. CJ was in his jersey. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, as soon as I got to the front, he just looked at me and he just loud as you like everyone in the room could hear anywhere just a, never hike in the snow baby and i was like yes <laughs> he just he's so into this never hike you know, yeah no, he's been he's hike. been one of our biggest cheerleaders out there on, on the convention circuit he tells every you know i see a lot of comments saying tom told me about this he's so excited i know that tom really sees it as like never hike alone in this series is his opportunity to sort of like I think buck the trend of, of sort of like the cliche Tommy stuff. Mm -hmm. Like he really likes that. This is like, well thought out. This isn't just like cookie cutter or like, you know, sand lines from the video game and, and stuff like that. This is sort of, you know, his opportunity to tell us like to really act in this. Like he's got a real journey. I mean, a real emotional, like yeah. core here. It's not like, it's not, 
on the surface, it's like we, you know, especially with the opening scene. I mean, let's talk about that opening scene. I haven't had a chance to really talk about it with anybody yet. I've been sitting on it since August. So the only thing we did last year was knowing we had to push back. I said, we got to give something for the fans because if we're just sitting on this money the entire time, then they're going to start to ask questions and we got to show them that their money's being put to work. And so we created a small team. We took a trip. You know, we raised more than our goal, so we took a little bit of that extra money and sort of like, let's go shoot the opening of the movie because it would make a great teaser. Like, this is a great way to open up the movie. Yeah. Like, it sets up that this is going to be a fight to the death. And um, what I love about that scene, one, is is horror Stevie. Stevie Wilder, who plays young Tommy Jarvis. Oh, he looks um, incredible. Being able, again, to, like, it seems so simple, but the, 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 the scene is so deep, you know, Tommy from pre part four Tommy to, you know, Tommy as he is today, the two spectrums of his life, a life before Jason where he had no fear of the water, where he would hang out down by the lake all the time without thinking twice about it. You know, even the story of Jason, like, yeah, they told him it was a story, but it was just a story. Right. And now this Tommy that knows and knows how much his life has been just completely fucked up by this, you know, experience of Jason Voorhees being haunted for Jason Voorhees ever since he was that age, you know, just like looking back on it and sort of in this dream, he represents sort of like a protector for himself that if he is there and he can protect his childhood, then at least he has this happy memory that he can come back to. This is his happy place, you know, a time when like, Maybe he did used to sneak down. Like they lived, like I always thought about the Jarvises lived close enough to Crystal Lake where he would sneak down to the camp every now and then and he would go fishing by himself because his dad wasn't around. Dad wasn't there to teach him how to tie a lure, that was for sure. And he he used to go here and here's a place where he could actually enjoy being a kid and he, was, he wasn't afraid of Jason. He had no fear of Jason. And to see Jason pop up in this happy place and pull his his you know his child his his vision of his perfect child into yeah. into the water um and him trying to save it and it just being another nightmare and just being another place where jason has invaded his space and you see that in his bedroom that jason has invaded his space he's welcomed him in he's surrounded himself by you know with all of these images and you know, these missing persons and he's taken responsibility for all of it and it haunts him and it still sends him into panic attacks. And we still get, and we see a little bit of Tommy from part five, the panic attack, yeah. the vision of Jason. But then we see that it's Tom Matthews, the, the version of Tommy that we last remember the one that fought Jason and put him into the lake. But now that work has been undone. So that means that his work is still unfinished. And this is the Tommy that we have. This is the Tommy that is broken and driven and driven mad and just trying to bring some type of semblance of a life and we're trying to live in the real world knowing that like I, I keep a lot of the times when I talk about Tommy I, I refer to him as Don Quixote he's <laughs> just chasing after windmills you know what I mean and yeah. after 20 years of chasing after windmills it's got to get tiring right you got to start doubting yourself, right? You know, especially after never hiking the snow, he got so close. That's what's mm -hmm. so heart-wrenching about never hiking the snow is that Tommy got so close. He got thwarted by Rick, his number one enemy. And if there was ever a time for Tommy to give up, it's now. And he wants to give up, but Jason still haunts him. Yeah. And he can't give up. And so I'm really excited about where the story goes from the special 
from the special sneak preview um, because that is the opening of the film. <laughs> the scene doesn't, the scene ends there for the sneak preview. But remember when we did Never Hike in the Snow and we just showed Jason firing the bow and arrow and then we cut away? There was more to that scene, yeah. right? Well, there's more to this scene too. There's, and oh. that's a lot of the work we need to do this spring. Um, there's a lot of big scene work that that leads into, you know, Tommy's motivation. And then we start to unravel for for fans. What I can give without spoiling it is that as that scene goes on, as that day unfolds, we see that we are leading fans into that moment where Tommy met Kyle and that we've rewound the clock just a little bit, about half a day about where was Tommy at the beginning of the day and how did Tommy end up getting Kyle on that, yeah. on that trail and sort of retreading that ground. And that was supposed to be what was called never hike again. And the reason why we called it never hike again was we're doing never hike alone again, but from Tommy's perspective, that's act oh, one. Okay. Act two is Jason takes Crystal Lake. Now at the end of act one, we get to that point where we get to the ambulance scenes. We get to the moment where they drive away and now they're heading back towards town. Now this is Jason takes Crystal Lake. Jason is walking out of the woods and he's coming into town. We're going to West Coast County Memorial. We're doing scenes in the hospital. Jason's going to come to that hospital. This is like my hall. This is my homage to Halloween too. And you know, if they wanted to turn Michael Myers into Jason, well, we're going to take it right back and be like, well, this is what happens if Jason would have went to the hospital. And then the final section, which is act three, which we've advertised is called the final hike. After there's a confrontation at Wessex County, which we're causing the Wessex County massacre. Um, survivors of that attack, you know, people, main characters in that, you know, not everyone's going to make it out of those scenes. Like everyone is, is on it. This is the suicide squad. You know what I mean? Like I'm not yeah. telling you who's going, who's staying, but there's a group of characters that need to go back to camp because that's the only place that they could finish it because the fighting Jason, you know, on open ground, um, you know, out in that area isn't going to do them much good, but if they can isolate him at the camp, um, there are certain things that they can do to sort of defeat him and put him to rest once and for all. And so that's sort of like the end game plan. And it really is that fine. Like that is, you know, that's why I say it's a kaiju battle. Mm -hmm. You know, if fans who are, you know, if you liked Never Hike Alone, the scenes where, you know, we had Jason attack Kyle in, in, in the camp and toss him out the door to nowhere and, you know, fight with him on the ground where Jason came into the main cabin and fought Kyle and threw him through the table. You know, Jason chased him around outside and had the, the fight with him with the sword and the, not the sword, the machete and the, and the shovel and all of that back and forth until like, one of them went down like that's what you're getting in the final hike it's another one of those big action stunt driven effects driven battle out brawl between the final main characters and with the goal of each of them trying to eliminate each other the goal is one kills the other or the other kills the other and um there's a lot of things that we've been setting up through Never Hike in the Snow, through Never Hike Alone, through Disappear. There's lots of Easter eggs that I've been dropping about Never Hike Alone 2 along the way. When fans get to the end of Never Hike Alone 2 and they get to the resolution and they get to the denouement and we get to the epilogue and we sort of finish out our story, my end goal for this is to give Friday the 13th fans something they've never had before in finality, which is a conclusion a bookend to the Paramount series that says this 
is the story of Jason. <clears throat> this is where Jason's story sort of comes to an end. Um, this is where it there there is no more conflict. There is no more, you know, the resolution has been had. The answers have been given. You know, there is peace. <laughs> and, you know, or is there type thing? And because yeah. you can never end, like, I think one rule about making a Friday the 13th film is you can never fully close the door. You can shut it, but you leave it unlocked. You need to leave enough breadcrumbs for another filmmaker to come and sort of tell another story mm -hmm. um, because that's what Friday the 13th is. But if you could like, like that's how I feel about part six. Like if the series stopped with part six, I would have been comfortable with that. There's yeah. something creepy knowing that like Jason was still out there chained to the bottom of the lake, sort of like <clears throat> still conscious. Yeah. But stuck. You yeah. know what I mean? And it was very satisfying. Very it was very satisfying. So that's sort of the goal with this is to give a satisfying ending and not one that feels convoluted, but and not one that's just all about like how do we get to like a big sort of like effect where like we get to kill Jason or do something in that realm of like how do we destroy Jason? Do we, you know, do we, you know, blow him up like in like in Jason goes to hell? Do we set him on fire? Do we drown him? Do we do any of these things? You know, it's not even about that. There's an emotional resolution, which yeah. is what I'm going after. There's an emotional sort of moment where I want you remember in Toy Story 4 where all the toys held hands? Oh they, they were going into the, the furnace. Yeah. I'm still scarred. I'm still scarred. I want fans to hold hands in the theaters and realize that here we go. This is our ride. You know what I mean? And I feel like yeah. that's an experience from 2009 that was robbed from me because as a, as a theater watcher, because I, when I watched the final sequence of Jason get sort of strung up, then dropped, then, you know, then stabbed, then his head goes into the thing. There was sort of like a 15 step component to his death, which didn't even feel all that satisfying. Like mm -hmm. you ran a sword, like the sword through him in an awkward fashion and then sort of did like... It wasn't like, oh my, like, it wasn't like you got chopped through the side of the head. You got an axe to the head. You got a, you got chopped into your heart. You got drowned at the lake. You got, you know, pulled down by a ghost dad. Um, you got washed out by toxic waste. Um, you got stabbed in the heart and sent to hell. You got, you know, completely your ass kicked by Freddy and you dropped into the lake, but with your last dying breath, pulled Jason, pulled Freddy down with you. Um, you know. 2006 had like a very convoluted, messy death that wasn't very satisfying. Mm -hmm. And so another goal of mine is to avoid that with this, is to be like, no, 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 it's going to be, there's going to be something at the end of this movie that when it's time for Jason's demise, you know, or time for any demise that, you know, you know, we're not like sugarcoating this. Like we're like, I'm saying this is a bookend for a reason, but that the fact that like, there's something else that goes along with it that we've never had before. And that's what's going to make this so special. And that's why, you know, that's going to be one of the last things we film, um, along with sort of the epilogue, the mm -hmm. sort of like the real, like the final, final people in the movie. Um, and it's sort of a, it's a goodbye. Mm -hmm. It's really what it is. I think it's a goodbye. And I think it's an opportunity for fans that are fans of Friday the 13th to say, I can say goodbye to that that those unanswered questions from the past and I can look forward to 
a series on Peacock, which is going to rewrite the rules. I can look forward to a new film from Sean that's going to reboot and rewrite the rules and, and attack in a different way. You know, I think with Sean, it's funny, like, in with Child's Play, which I think is a good example, Chucky, the TV series, is the original creator, really leaning heavily on the old tropes, leaving Emily that's like really into the into the lore and things like that. And you're getting sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek version of Chucky. And then they did mm-hmm. like the complete reboot of like a brand new Chucky, nothing, Charles Lee, all that stuff is all out the window. Um, and they're doing something brand new. And so I think what you're going to get is the exact opposite with Friday the 13th. I feel like Peacock is going to be the one that really branches out and is daring and does some stuff that we haven't seen before. And what you're going to get with, you know, with Sean is really going back to the old bag of tricks. Like mm-hmm. he has a very set view on what Friday the 13th is. His rule is if in six minutes there isn't a death or nudity, it's not Friday the 13th, which is, I think personally is an outdated technique. I feel like, Maybe now it's been long enough that you may be able to get away with that for a couple of years, but it's a formula that's going to go stale quick versus like keeping people on their toes and not what's going to happen next. I feel like Peacock is going to be the risk. That's going to be, you know, the child's play that's, you know, in theaters or the, and then, you know, Friday the 13th is going to be the Chucky and that's, but that's going to be in theaters and we're going to get like the daring stuff on TV. Yeah. So if never Hike alone can sort of put the nostalgia to rest, I feel like these two, these two entities of Friday the Thirteenth lore can be helped by that, by a fan film sort of doing things that, even with all the rights in place and all those things, they still they probably still can't touch Tommy Jarvis or Tom Matthews or some of the things that I'm touching upon and bringing people back. They're probably not interested in doing those things, but fans are interested in seeing those things. Mm-hmm. So, providing those to fans takes away that sense of like, well, we don't want to see this. We want to see that. Well, we've given you that. Now you have a chance to move on. We give you the, we gave you the toys you wanted. Now maybe here's the things you don't expect it because you've been, uh, those are my dogs. Um, no, beeping outside my house. I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. um, and you sort of like open it up. I think, I think it's like, we've been you know, like afforded a great opportunity by the studios not suing us. We've had, you know, filmmakers reach out to us from, from the series and, you know, say that they're fans of our work and that, you know, they're cheering us on and no one's going to come out and sue us. And we just got to be responsible. And, 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 you know, I think that we've proven that and, and that's something we're really, we're really conscious of. Um, so we're very thankful for it. And at the same time, we're fans, you know, I'm going to turn around at the end of the day and I'm going to, I'm going to be a cheerleader, but I'm going to discuss it like a fan. And I look forward to like, looking at the series and looking at the episodes and yeah. like judging it like a fan. Like, is this where I wanted it to go? Is this what I like? But I think because I have Never Hike Alone in my back pocket, I no longer have to try to explain to anybody what I expect. I put what I expect on the screen. Yeah. Now I expect better. And honestly, like, Brian Fuller, that guy's a master writer. Of course I expect, like, he's gonna probably going to blow Never Hike Alone out of the water. And that's what's good. Like, they should. My films should not be blowing the franchise entries out of the water. And the fact that they blow some of them out of the water and the fans like them more than that, that's a challenge for the studios to get better because I'm oh. doing it with a fraction 
a fraction of the resources, like minutia resources compared to what they have. You know, when people t- you know, people ask me about why am I so upset with 2009, they had $20 million. <laughs> oh my God, you know what I could do with $20 million? You know how I would have spent that money? I'll tell yeah. you what, I wouldn't have bought tunnels. That's yeah. the first thing I wouldn't have bought because I would have saved a ton of money there, I guarantee you. Um, good Lord, like, what we're spending the money on now. Oh, if I could amplify that by $20 million, yeah. I could bring back yeah. all the scenes that I wanted to do. I mean, sometimes that can ruin a project, but I honestly, I feel like it's, it's just so well built. There would have been helicopters and shit. It would have been great. <laughs> 20 million. It's insane. It's insane. Well, I mean, in terms of, well, in 2009 too. So that's like 25, 30 million now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for, for the never hike two. um, the Indiegogo campaign is still there. It's it's going strong as $238,000. or an insane amount of money. It's the biggest one yet. It's awesome. Um, I think if we get to $250,000, we get a kill montage. So we're almost there. That's we getting did. added hope. I can, well, to be fair, I think that that should hit really the way it's going at the moment, especially on the back of the teaser yeah, I think, released. Yeah, I mean, I think on the back end, we'll hit that. It's about sort of, it's about when we... It's about when we do, mm-hmm. really, um, and which is going to dictate the schedule. Like if we hit it yesterday, I can start planning for that stuff now and scheduling it now. If we hit it in the middle of production, I may have to come back in June or July and shoot a new scene, okay. um, which may have always been the case. You know what I mean? But I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not going to focus on things that I don't have yet. And I still have a ton of work to do to get ready for thing. Like, like I said, like I'm still doing rewrites. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Like I get ideas or I read through a scene and I, and I, I have like a come to Jesus about it where I'm like, you know, I know what this scene is supposed to do. And when we get to the movie, it will do that. But right now I feel like I'm forcing the issue or I feel like the character's not being honest. Like the character wouldn't say it this way or, you know, would they like, does this feel arbitrary that this is being brought up right now? Like, what's the motivation here? Like, why are these people being driven to have this conversation? And how is this conversation leading to these lines? So they don't feel like rehearsed lines from a script, but these are actual characters emoting how they feel and reacting to one another. And that's a really important part about the authenticity of a scene. Um, which, you know, I made the mistake of being like kind of cookie cutter with my dialogue. I look back on Never Hike in the Snow and my biggest regret is that I had this instinct that I didn't follow during the during the filming because like the script was written. I didn't want to upset anything. But when I watched it kind of play out, I went, man, like, honestly, like Dr. Hill wouldn't be so passive about this. Like she'd be trying to go out and look for her son. And there were ways even that I was trying to think of, like how is a way that I could seamlessly sort of like mm-hmm. get Diana active, make her more active. And I never found a way to do it. And I made the film and I let it live. And so that's sort of been my mission with Never Hike Alone too, is like never let Anna become inactive. Like she misses her son. She wants to find answers and she's going to get involved. And she's not going to sit back and wait for answers. And if she's waiting for answers, she's not going to be like, okay, you know, whatever you say, Sheriff. Like I really, I guess it's because I had thought that I was going to jump right in and never hike alone too, never Mm -hmm. hike again right away that I didn't really think too hard about sort of that because I knew she was going to jump into action in, in the stories. But since never hike alone, never hike in the snow, I said to do, it. I look at series and being like, wow, like her, like she's acting like her son is dead already. Like she sort of knows and yeah. I think that that's yeah. okay. Um, but I think there needs to be more of like, 
there's there's like some type of false hope at this moment and that maybe she can do something and you know she wants to go out and search but the police stop her from searching and she's forced to stay home in a way i think there was some things that i could have gone in and done there but at the end of the day the characters still all ended up in the same place of where they were going to be um and it would have made it a better movie um but at, those are the things you learn so now i i put that lesson in there like Thank God I didn't make that 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 make that mistake on Never Hike in the Never Hike Alone too. You know what I mean? Like learning that and the other things really helped me. Um, doing the other projects, working on other people's films, helps me get prepared to do this because this is to date the most important project I've ever worked on. And you know that goes for like the major productions that I've worked on. I've worked on million dollar films, but I was just a cog in that wheel. And with Never Hike Alone, the buck stops with me. I'm the one whose name is on the project. I'm the one whose name is on the crowdfund. If anything goes wrong, people are coming after me. I'm the one doing, you know, if, if you know, all this stuff happens, like I'm the one that has to like deal with the lawsuit or getting sued or, or you know, getting fined or going to jail if we somehow break a rule in crowdfund and the studios decide that we're, you know, the worst thing to happen, you know, in, since Jason goes to hell. And, um, <laughs> And so we, um, I take all that risk. And so I think, you know, that's the balance of it in a way is, yeah. is, um, is I'm, I didn't want to tackle this until I knew I was ready. And, you know, yeah, I could have just gone and done it, but I'm really invested in making this like really, really good. Um, we had to deal with some stuff, you know, obviously COVID and, you know, COVID threw off a lot of different things. Um, you know, like we're going to talk about it probably in a little bit. It's probably a good time to segue in it. But like we were supposed to shoot Dylan's new nightmare two years ago, too. And that film got derailed. And there was a couple other projects like the Jason Rising project, which got derailed by COVID. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of this time fulfilling promises to people who helped me out with Never Hike Alone in some way um, or helped me out with Never Hike in the Snow in some way. And I was helping them finish their project. So I sort of took a break from Never Hike Alone, working on it full time to help other people finish their projects as a producer, become a better filmmaker through that, help them elevate their projects. Um, with Jason Rising, that was a, a fantastic uh, experience working with James and Carl. I'm really happy with the result of that film. I think that, um, you know, I really think that, uh, you know, with all the stuff that we do in Never Hike Alone with the limited body count, um, Jason Rising was an opportunity for me to work with filmmakers had, you know, you know, multiple deaths working mm -hmm. into their film in a, in an organic way. Like Jason Rising to me is predator meets Jason Voorhees. It's very much a similar structure. And we talked about that early on where it's, you know, a group of mercenaries, a group of police officers go into a situation that they're meant to deal with. And then when they get to there to deal with the first situation, they realize that there is an unknown situation waiting for them that is way bigger and more important than what they went there in the first place for. And now it's going to be up to them to work together to get out. Yeah. Um, once they had me hooked on that storyline, I was like, you're in Never Hike Alone world, my friend. You're no longer making a Friday the 13th film. You're making like a modern Friday the 13th film based on another type of structure and putting Jason in that structure. And not only are you doing that, you're bringing back Pamela, which yeah. is, you know, it's their idea. And that was the thing that yeah. drew me to the project, a headless zombie oh. Pamela walking around murdering people. I remember watching that for the first time. And I, I actually didn't know anything about the Pamela thing. I just kind of went into it totally blind. Yes, that's awesome. I did because I was like, I was just like, this is such a fresh take 
And I, I've, I've uh, same with Never Hike and everything. I've always said to people who are Friday fans, you need to check out Jason Rising, yeah. especially if you're a, you know, you know, don't try and spoil it. But if you're a Pamela fan, this is it's just such a fresh, it's a fresh take. If so you're a, yeah, if you're an old school fan, you like the first four movies. This is like the final chapter mixed with like a sprinkling of the rest. And there's some great cameos. There's great surprises in it. Um, it's definitely like it's definitely it definitely bucks the trend on like the canon. Um, it acts as if nothing happens after part four but this movie. Um, so that was a lot of fun. We got to do a lot of really cool kills on that. And you know, hats off to James and Carl for doing that. Um, at the same time, I got involved with Cecil Laird from the horror yeah. show to work on uh, Dylan's New Nightmare, which is a Nightmare on Elm Street fan film. And Nightmare is not my. I love Nightmare. Don't get me wrong. I love Freddy and all that stuff. But it's I'm, it's it's no Friday the Thirteenth to me. Like I know Friday the Thirteenth in and out. I know so many facts about the movies that I shouldn't know. Nightmare, I know some facts. I'm very familiar with the storylines. <laughs> But I can't quote the films and do things like I can with Friday. Mm -hmm. But I saw that passion in Cecil. And, you know, to do a sequel to Wes Craven's New Nightmare, that was different. And that if we could successfully convince Nico Hughes to take on the role and we could treat it seriously like we treat Never Hike Alone, that this would be a project worth pursuing. Um, after meeting with Miko, he said yes. And we started to put the pieces in place. We raised some money. We were going to go out and shoot COVID. You know, we had Dave McRae attached as our as our Freddy. Uh, we had Nora Hewitt attached as our effects artist to build our Freddy, which the sculpt came out amazing. Uh, and Dave did a great job playing Freddy when we actually got to make the film. Um, but we had to wait for the Border Patrol to open up travel between Canada and, and the U.S., which, you know, COVID went lax here in the States pretty early on compared to what Canada did. Mm -hmm. So David was basically um, Dave was basically a prisoner in his own country. <laughs> Um, he couldn't come out and film. We were all making different movies and working on different things and life, you know, Cecil was having a kid, getting a new job. I was working on a couple of different projects. I was helping Jason Rising. I was doing more Never Hike stuff. I was helping other filmmakers with their projects. Um, and so finally this year was when like the COVID restrictions lifted, Dave could travel. We went immediately into casting the rest of the roles, which, you know, we ended up getting Ron Sloan and Cindy Kanai, two, two people that I had met after I had done 13 Fanboy, another production that was yeah. in the middle of all that stuff. And then I helped sort of like, you know, I didn't really help produce, produce, but I was there as a, as someone to contact and be there for and help out on set. Um, just somebody for Deb to talk to when she was like, oh, I need this person or that person. Like, oh, here's this actress and you should meet this person. But, you know, meeting Ron on that was amazing. Meeting Vinny is how I met Cindy. She worked on our Pathosis project. Um, and so adding those two and then having the rest of the cast that we had, you know, we hired local actors, people that, that Cecil knew in Phoenix. Um, and we ended up hiring um, uh, Ben Meredith as, as the director of photography. We made a switch at that position. Um, based on experiences that we had, you know, out in the public working with different people, we were like, you know what, we need to bring in a real professional here to handle this. You know, we obviously can't like, you know, leave the fans wanting more or, you know, leave, we can't walk away from a day feeling like we've wasted a bunch of money. Like if we're going to spend this money and we only have a finite time to do it, we have no second chances. Yeah. And I'd rather work with somebody who can get it right on the first time rather than somebody who needs to go back out and do it multiple times over and over again, um, or isn't willing to. Um, so Ben coming on was like the savior because he has such a great cinematic eye. I think people who saw finally got to see the first images from Dylan's new nightmare, which are on the Indiegogo campaign, yeah. which is still open. Uh, you know, that's a trick, not a trick, but like 
we started realizing that with in demand, you should never close your campaign while you're still in production. Like until it's time to hit export, that's when you close your campaign and that's when you, you cut off credits because now you actually have to print the credits and then you open up a, a post product, I mean, a, a home video campaign. So that way you can continue to pay off the debt that will accrue from doing all of this stuff because yeah. there's, there's a pre-production phase, there's a production phase, there's a post-production phase, and then there's a fulfillment phase. And each one requires their own budget. And each one often will go over budget. And so that starts to come out of your own personal income. But if you can keep ahead of yourself in crowdfunding, you can walk away from the experience either breaking even or with a little bit of money left over to donate to a good cause. You know, we've donated to the Penny Pines Reforestation Program. I've donated to the Special Olympics. Um, we supported uh, J.D. Martz, who was the, the DP and the first Never Hike Alone. Um, he got into an accident at, shortly after filming Never Hike Alone. He became paralyzed. So there's the J.D. Martz Recovery Fund. So we've donated to his his recovery fund with some of the funds that we've raised um, and done some good things. And with Dylan's new nightmare, we have completed filming. We completed filming in, in November. It was a great experience. We shot for six days in Phoenix. We have uh, some second unit work to do to, to, to now do the Los Angeles side of things. You know, we use the stages and some houses mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. Phoenix. So now we got to get exteriors and set that world in, in Los Angeles. So we're going to film that in the spring and summer. Um, we still, you know, we're still doing pretty well there. That's not the, you don't have to do as big as sets to do all that stuff or big crews to do this. Um, a, um, I actually get to see the first cut of it, uh, this week, which is, it's really good. It's coming oh. along really, really nicely. We're really excited about it. I know Cecil's really excited. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll probably release a trailer sometime in March or April. You know, we're going to hear back from our editor and see what works best. Um, we're going to work you know, into the summer on the cut, into the post-production, see how much extra money we can raise. We've talked about maybe if we raise some money, we might be able to add some scenes and do some stuff because this isn't episodic. Mm -hmm. Dylan's New Nightmare isn't a feature film. It's a 25-minute, you know, episode that has a beginning, middle, and end. It mm -hmm. has, you know, it's it says that there's more story to be told, but we show an instance in which this story is sort of, you know, sent into motion. Um, the film will probably release... Um, I don't know. We'll have to pick a good time for it. You know what I mean? Like we just get, we're going to, what we're going to look for is a good premiere. We want to find a festival that we can show it at and we can have people come out and see it and see it in a theater for the first time, which I think will be a great experience for everybody. It's shot like a big budget movie. So we should see it like a big budget movie. Um, and the release will coincide with that screening, just like we did with Tell the Ride Horror Show. Like we'll start the screening and then we'll hit play on YouTube. People can watch it at home as we're watching them in the theater and then we can all gather online afterwards and talk about it. Um, home video sales after that, you know, to help kind of finalize the fulfillment side of it. There's a lot of like different perks that, that Cecil has to get for people and build. And that's gonna be its own set of production that we'll go through at that point. And then we'll see if there's interest to carry on the series. Yeah. Um, I think if fans love it enough, the smart thing to do would be what we did with Never Hike in the Snow and Never Hike Alone 2, which is, okay, you can either keep getting in these 25-minute chunks, or you can hit this big-ass goal, and we can do the rest of the story in one fell swoop. And you will give us the money to go out and get the things and build it, and we'll film it all at once. And Never Hike Alone 2 will sort of be the second-tier proving ground for that. And saying that this is what happens when you trust a Womp Stomp Films team or a Womp Stomp Films affiliated team with this type of money. You're going to get this type of experience. Obviously, we can be trusted with it. So please join us on this journey. 
Um, and that's something we're really prideful of. Like when I work with people and they want to work with me, they want to use the Womp Stomp brand to sort of be a producer on their film. You know, it's a blessing and a curse because the blessing is, is that I've built a big fan base and I have a lot of experience working in this industry and, you know, we can get their projects done. Mm-hmm. Um, the part is that I have expectations for me as a Womp, as, as you know, the guy who created Womp Stomp Films, who when people see my logo in front of a film, they expect it to be good. They expect it to, to hit a certain quality level because that's what we're trying to do. And that's what we're trying to sell people on is that when you invest in us, we're going to give you quality and we're going to give you more hits than misses. And obviously, like no one's perfect. You know, not every film that we've done to date has been like perfect from, you know, anything that we've ever worked on. You know, not every production is completed like the Jason um meets the Wolfman project that we, you know, we co-produced and, and the face of Michael Myers things that we co-produced, like those are projects I really believe in, mm-hmm. um, but didn't get the backing that it needed, even though it had our seal of approval on it. So, um, and we've had other projects that did get our seal of approval and get made. And we've been like, it didn't hit our standard. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? So there is a, we, we try to figure out how to avoid that point in the future. And we want people to realize that what Dil- what people are going to see with Dylan's new nightmare is like, a this is the template this is what we're going for this is the type of film we can make and these are the type of stories we want to tell if you want to go on this full journey you got to give it a budget like never hike alone too and never hike alone too is going to be like remember when you didn't give us money on never hike alone and and we made that movie and now you've given us this money and we've given you never hike in the snow and never hike alone too and eventually they're all going to be cut into one massive cut and you're going to see what your investment actually equated to we want to do the same thing with Dylan's. The only difference is, is that I'm not the, I'm not where the buck stops on Dylan. Cecil is. Yeah. And so I want to set Cecil up for success and I can continue to, to, to function sort of how I function now on that project, which is like a producer, uh, a first AD, um, a co-writer and a, you know, just a mind in the room, you know, someone to say, Hey, I've been through this before. I've, you know, you guys are on level 16. I'm on level 782. Let me, you know, tell you about some of these tricks of the trade that like little nuancey things or things that can really amplify a scene or, you know, some some shop theory that I learned or, um, oh, you know what, you know, I'm looking at this scene and, you know, I think there's an opportunity to use this type of, of effect or mm-hmm. there's an opportunity to use this type of transition in order to make this a little bit more effective and sort of having that background. If I can give people those, if I can fill in those gaps for them, that's less time that they need to go through this to learn these lessons. They're going to learn them earlier and it's going to benefit them to be more ahead of the game as they move their career. And I like, from my standpoint, that's me. That's my sports side of me. I like being a coach. I like coaching people up. Yeah. I like watching the people that I've coached go out there and succeed. You know, even the people that I feel like have taken advantage of me, even though they've taken advantage of me and I don't want to work with them anymore. When I look out and I see what they're doing, they're doing the things that I taught them. And even though they don't like me or they don't think that like, you know, or whatever, whatever it is that like, that I just sort of was like, listen, like you didn't hit my standard on being honest. Like, and these are the reasons why, yeah. like they may say like, well, you know, they can give ex- any excuse they want to give. That's fine. That That's on them. But at the end of the day, if they're still using my formula, if they're still following me to a T, then 
maybe I was a little bit more right than than they want to admit. And maybe I'm not, you know, when I comment people, like as far as like with criticism, I'm not doing it to tear them down or I'm not doing it to, to for any reason, but I'm going to help them get better because once you start to realize your own faults, when you start to realize how your actions take effect on other people, you start to look at your own internal actions and make changes. If you just think you're the best filmmaker of all time and you don't need to have anyone tell you what to do, then you're going to have a bad time because I'm going to tell you what directors I've seen them come to professional sets, new directors, people who nepotism their way into these sets and things like that. Everybody on set knows more than you, especially about their department. They know so much more than you and it is humbling and overwhelming, but you learn how to, coach those people and you learn how to get the best out of those people and they want to work for you they want to give you their best and they're going to teach you things like there's things as a director you have to have which is vision leadership and answers you need to have answers and i think i try to help people avoid sort of getting lost in the things that i see independent filmmakers the things that they do that they either lose their crew or they lose focus on a scene, or they just try to rehash something that they've seen from an old movie and they're not giving their own spin on it. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that when I go to film festivals and I've been to a lot of film festivals now and I've sat and I've sat through a lot of short blocks and I've watched a lot of shorts and I watch the shorts, but I also watch the audience. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's common themes that I see happen in those films that get good reaction versus the common themes that happen when films don't get reactions. And honestly, like not getting a reaction is probably the worst feeling in the world. When yeah, no, yeah. whenever we're just sitting there <clears throat> silent, you could hear a pin drop and people are coughing. Like it's a rough short and you want, you know, my goal is to always go out there and like, obviously like we should have fun and we should do all that stuff too. But you know, we want to go out and impress people. We want people to react. Like that's why we do. I don't give up my weekends. I don't stay up till four o'clock in the morning shooting movies in the freezing cold so I can walk into a theater and have people go. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. Or leave a thumbs down or say, this is boring or this isn't as good as that other thing. And you sort of go like all that effort for this. Mm-hmm. Like, I, this isn't how I want to leave a project. I want to leave a project like being like, people love this. Like, it's motivation to go on to the next thing. Like, and honestly, like some of the stuff that we've done that hasn't met my standard just motivates me to go on to the next one and be like, we're never doing that again. Yeah. That was part of that was part of the <laughs> Dylan's New Nightmare project. It was like, we came off of another project and it was just like an awful experience. It was just like everything that we had set at the beginning of the project was saying, these are our goals. This is the expectation. And we, as far as I'm concerned, we like we flew way below the radar. Like yeah. the, the way that we handled production, the way that we handled so many different decisions on the movie, I was like, we cannot do this on Dylan's New Nightmare. And it's one of the reasons why we made a change in sort of our team because we needed to weed people out who were going to hold us back, who were going to settle for less and be okay with it. And think that like, just because that is the highest they had ever been, they didn't realize that the ceiling was much higher and they could have achieved much more, but they were willing to do it because it wasn't as hard. Yeah. Oh, you know, they took the easy way out. And what I loved about, what I love about James, what I love about Carl, what I love about Cecil 
you know, these collaborators is they never let anything stand in their way and the ceiling was never too high for them. And they were never willing, you know, like they were willing to go above and beyond at all times and then make decisions that were best for the movie instead of themselves. Yeah. Make decisions that were better for their crew instead of themselves. And when you can put your crew and your movie ahead of yourself and all of those things, that's where you're going to find success. And that's what we try to do at Wampson Films. And that's that's the price you pay for doing a Wampson film is that you're probably going to work harder than you've ever worked in your life. And you're going to feel it's going to drive you nuts. But at the end of the day, you're going to walk out there with a film that when it goes into a short block with a bunch of audiences, it's going to get not only a good reaction from those audiences, but it's going to get into festivals that people actually go to. Yeah, I yeah. see one of the things that pet peeves me more than anything in the world is when you see independent filmmakers going out and buying laurels basically from festivals that no one goes to. They're, 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 they're not even like real festivals. They're just online and they have it every two months. So every two months you just, people are just buying laurels, but the competition you're in with is nothing. And you're starting to notice that like almost everybody gets in and you see posters lined with a bunch of festivals you've never heard of before. You're like, what is that? Like, <laughs> Like, like Uncle Carl's like Ranch Barn Film <laughs> Festival from you know yeah. Baton Rouge. Okay, um, who yeah. goes there? Well, who, what what you know what dis- distribution company went there and and you know scouted films that year? You know, you know like one of our great successes with you know Pithosis was bringing it to Telluride Horror Show again, an original project going to Telluride, which was a big deal for me. Um, I also had my Imagine short brought to. Um, uh, Telluride Horror Show, and these were things that got picked up by Bloody Disgusting and put on Bloody Bites. Pathosis mm-hmm. was put in Fangoria. You know, those are the things that, as an independent filmmaker, you know, you should strive to. I'd rather get rejected from all of the best film festivals and at least say I went to those, than try to walk around as if some fan, you know, some festival from that that is really honestly, it's a, like it's a it's a industry of of different festivals that people literally just pay laurels for and they get a laurel and they turn around they say i'm a winner here it's like a winner against what yeah no a winner like (laughs) and did you notice that there's like also other winners in your category also with the same laurel as you i think you all got scammed (laughs) like i've seen people like i there were like i learned that lesson where there was like there was one festival I, i just liked the look of it i was like this is a cool festival and i submitted to it and I had gotten like plenty of letters from saying, oh, you should submit and all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And then when I actually researched the festival, I was like, wait a second. Like, oh, this is a scam. Like, yeah. this is just a total scam. And okay. And so now I know to look out for those. I don't, I don't, like, I'd rather like submit to like the five regular festivals that I usually do and just go through them than even waste time, like just collecting laurels from something that when somebody looks at it on my poster, they're not even going to know what it is. Yeah. It's like, and that, at that point, that becomes just a vain thing to be like, oh, look, I have all these laurels. But like, when you actually peel back the surface, it's like, it's a playing card. You know what I mean? The deck of cards, when you look at it from a certain angle, is just going to collapse. So that's why I think that, now there's a lesson I would say, independent film, save your money. Like, don't drop thousands of dollars on a bunch of film festivals. Drop maybe a couple hundred on the ones that matter. And roll the dice. And if you get in, you get in. And if you don't, you don't. And that is your true test. Yeah. Get into those festivals. Aim high. 
Um, if you want to do a local festival, just go do a 40 hour film festival and have some fun for the weekend. You know what I mean? At least you have more of an opportunity to like coax people out to work for one weekend for free. Mm -hmm. You can save a bunch of money that way. And that can become your annual thing to make something. But you know, if you're going to ask people to work for free and, and all that stuff, and it's just going to be something that, you know, at the end of the day, you don't, not everyone can enjoy, then you're yeah. sort of, you got to look at the reasons why you're making films. Hi guys, Ryan here. Just to let you know, at this point in the interview, we both took a very quick bathroom break. We'd gone for about two hours at this point in time, and I really needed the toilet, so we had to take a quick break, just in case you were wondering why the conversation suddenly stopped, and then when we pick back up again, in a couple of seconds' time, the conversation on the subject is completely different. That is basically the reason. So, anyway, that is out of the way, and back to the interview. It took the opportunity. I was like, oh, he's not back. I'm going to grab a coffee real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what's done me in, I think. Just the, the mm. coffee and the. <laughs> well, that's me every morning, man. Coffee, water, and just sitting here, you know, right here. This is like, I'm like, I moved home um, in uh, summer this year uh, after I finished uh, working on a project um and decided to take some time off originally i was supposed to shoot over the summer and that got extended so i extended this time home here um basically turned my parents basement into a uh, i mean literally my parents basement into a, a, a like a little production studio uh, i got like a whole like setup over here where i got all my stuff and i've been able to organize and do stuff and work locally and sort of start to once this project is over the goal is is that um i can actually live a life again <laughs> <laughs> uh, I gotta tell you, like, I don't think people realize that, you know, never hike alone, like in order to do this, I've had to make tremendous sacrifices. Um, you know, working a full-time job is something that I can't do. Like I can work for a few months freelance. Um, but when never hike alone comes around, can you imagine working like a corporate job and be like, I need to take a month off so I can go shoot a fan film. Yeah. You know what I mean? And honestly, that's where, where all my interviews would end. I'd be like, listen, I have this thing I'm super passionate about. It's going to be over eventually. And after that, like you'll have me, but eventually this is going to happen. And I also started to recognize that it was a distraction. I was distracted at work. Like if an email came in for never hike alone and it had to be answered right away, like, I was trying to sneak in an email on set, you know what I mean? And then my AD goes, what are you doing on your phone? And I'm like, oh God, I really need to send this email. Like there's a backer who might back us at like $2,000, you know what I mean? Yeah. And become a big, like, this is a big step for us. Like, this is a big backer. Like, you know, I want to give them the attention that they need. I don't want to have to wait. And, and so like I get pulled, like my job and my dream. And so it's put me at odds with people that I've worked with. I think some people look at me and go like, what are you doing? Why, what's so important? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there was one day on set where I was like, you know how they keep giving me crap for like being on my phone about shit. I was like, well, I launched a campaign today and look how much money I just raised. I was like, that's why I take five minutes in between takes to go write an email when nothing's going on. So like, it might look like I'm not doing anything, but I just raised, you know, $50,000 in the last yeah. like, two days. So it's worth it. I'm not sitting here just updating my Facebook page. I'm, I'm making money. I'm doing my side hustle. So leave me alone and respect the, respect the grind. So I've been sick of having that conversation. I can't wait. Honestly, the thing I'm looking forward to most is like Never Hike Alone 2 being done. Never Hike Alone being done. I've shipped out all the fulfillments. That's all done. Now I'm working again. And 
my projects that I'm going to do are much smaller and they're going to be much more contained. So I'll be able to do them over a weekend versus having to do them over months and months and months of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of being able to concentrate and get into a full-time job and not be distracted and mm-hmm. being able to give it my all. And then with Never Hike Alone 2 out in the world, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, we're going to have a chance to bring it to festivals. We're going to have a chance to play it at Friday the 13th events. So the opportunity to go out and watch the hard work be screened in front of other people, I have other opportunities like this to talk about it with people, that will always be there in between my daily life of working a full-time job that will allow me to go back to the life I was living before I started Never Hike Alone, which was, you know, living a, you know, a decent life with a decent career and, you know, a decent wage and um, hopefully starting a family and all sorts of stuff. You know what I mean? I feel like this has been my Odysseus adventure. And when I come back afterwards, uh, this is, this has been my odyssey and, and we'll see where my life goes from there. But um, if I get an opportunity to direct TV or, or film, feature films, then so be it. If I have to work on set or work in a production office, so be it. If I have to go back to animation, that might be the best thing. Or maybe I get into gaming or something. I know so much about this world now that like, you know, honestly, what I've learned is it's almost better to be someone with a nine to five, someone who can get up every day, you know, your job is secure. You are good at what you do. You don't have to like love what you do, but if you work with cool people and you know, you know it well enough enough and it pays you a decent wage. And I have this skill as a filmmaker and I can make really good shorts on the weekends. That might be enough for me. Yeah. Honestly, like if they're not going to come and pay me the big bucks to go make big budget feature films, why am I going to, why am I going to sacrifice my happiness and time just to pursue some type of thing? Like, I feel like never hike alone would have given me that, like, you know, I have nothing to lose now. Like mm-hmm. now it's like, I can try to do things and do that stuff, but I'd rather, I'd rather make a great five minute short than have to keep sacrificing my life to make some independent feature that gets put on Amazon that nobody watches, <laughs> you know, which is like basically 90% of like independent horror, which is yeah. like they get, they, the films get made and the people kill themselves to get them done. And then nobody really sees it and it goes up and it's, it, it, I'm, I'm like an all or nothing guy. Like the reason why I'm not playing baseball is because I figured out at some point I wasn't going to get into the hall of fame. I was like, if I'm not going to get in the Hall of Fame, then, and I'm not going to be the best at what I do, then let me go find the thing that, like, I'm going to be the best at what I do at. And I feel like filmmaking to a degree is that. But priorities change as you get over it. Like, I kind of see, like, maybe the best thing that I'm going to do is, is like, <clears throat> you know, find my life and be a good dad or mm-hmm. be a good, you know, father or a husband or be a good, um, you know, be a good coach be a good positive influence and you know, teach other kids how to make films, maybe inspire the next Steven Spielberg or the next, you know, Greta Thunberg or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, you, you sort of, sort of start to have that. And the thing is like, when you have that satisfaction, because honestly, like all I ever wanted to do in my life was work on a Friday the 13th. And now that I've been able to make it and rewrite it. And to make, and you probably feel like it now, definitely, uh, such an impact, I feel. You've you've left a legacy with the Friday the 13th franchise. You know what I mean? So if you were to never do anything again after that, you've left this lasting 
impact and this lasting mm-hmm. legacy with the fans and and that is sort of like the isn't that the sort of the goal sometimes it's like part of it is like being able to leave a legacy like have you seen um what's the banshee of what's the name of that the town in ireland that's the name of the banshee of Bysheer or you know what i'm talking about with no, uh, colin farrell and um anyway one of the main things is that this character in the film and i forget this actor's name because i'm really bad with names but not count colin farrell but the other guy um and they were in bruges together um and so in bruges together and um basically the story is that this guy who these two used to be best friends for decades and one day one of them wakes up and says i don't want to be your friend anymore and the guy's like what are you talking about we drink at the pub every day we do everything every day we have long conversations yet yet and the guy basically says like i want to stop wasting my life being your friend because I want to leave a legacy and my legacy is going to be this music that I'm going to write and literally gives up his friendship so he can write music and, um, and his friend tries to win his friend back. And it's this back and forth, this sort of love story um, between two friends is one is falling out and the other one is trying to learn to live with the decision that their friend has made. And it escalates in very hilarious ways, but sort of the same thing. It's like we in life sort of want to leave that thing that people recognize us for, but you know, and that's, that's a nice pursuit and it's cool to have it, but at what cost of your actual life is it bringing to you? And I can tell you that like never hike alone too, and never hike and all this stuff has been a great journey, but it's come at great cost um, to my personal life to my private life, to my professional life. Um, I've had to take a back, it's all had to take a back seat for this to do it. And the upside is, is that people will remember it, that it will live on, that we have it on, you know, it's a digital file that can be put anywhere and streamed anywhere. So if YouTube dies out, there'll be something else we can put it on. There's physical discs that people will be able to play it on systems. We'll always find a way to make it available and that there is a demand for it. So that's sort of that part of it. And so, even with all that said, I look at sort of the quality of life that's that's around it, and I go, I need to make a change. Like, I need to make a change to to, and you know, maybe some of the the never hike stuff is self referential, like with Jason being like, oh, I'm doing all this stuff, but am I really happy? And I am happy, and I do love doing it. But at the same time, like every now and then, I got to recognize that like it's cost me this relationship, or it's cost me this job, or it's cost me this money, and it's cost me this time and this stress and the times that I've agonized over pieces not fitting and and story pages not working. But the type of stress you go through to get it right, um, I can understand. Like I think there, there's a balance to it. So there's good and there's bad, and so. After all of that, I really sort of like I've learned to you know cherish my friendships and time with people more. You know how much time this has taken away from my family, like being able to see my parents and my brothers and my siblings and my friends who you know I lived in LA with for 15 years and I never saw. You know, for years I, I would go a year without seeing my best friends because I would just be on some different never hike or filming adventure or film, and it was just sort of driving me nuts. And this year has given me an opportunity to sort of reset my clock and reset my priorities and really realize that like, man, like this really does mean nothing. If you know, you don't have people around you that you love and you get to spend time with and you get to spend that quality time. Cause you may be the king of your own castle, but it's not fun being in a tower alone. 
and you know doing it all by yourself it's much more fun when other people are doing it with you never hike alone <laughs> like never hike alone in the forest and never hike alone in life like and if you have a family and if you have those things and you look at somebody like me and you go like oh man they must have it all I'll tell you what i don't have a child right now i don't you know i'm not married um you know i'm i'm in between work you know i have to work from job to job to job i need to scrape by luckily i have a tremendous uh network of family and friends that you know have helped me and have given me a place to stay and have offered me a chance to like you know live you know in this world um you know with a little bit of help so they know that i can finish this journey and it's brought me it's brought me much like it's really showed me in my life like the people who really support me and support this journey and who really are impressed by it um because those people have shown up and they're there and they're doing it and they, you know, i look to my left and my right and they're out there picking up the wood or picking up the set or doing those things or hustling and getting it done and you know that's really what what has made the difference to me and so as i finish this journey it's like it gives me an opportunity to take that hard look at my life again and be like okay i know i know what the priority is and you know yeah. if you're going to pull me out of this and you're going to take these things away like now it's really going to have to be worth it and so and these things are going to have to come with me i'm not giving up these things anymore because i've already given up enough awesome well i can't wait to see the final this this could be the the final friday we might actually get a definitive final friday so <laughs> i'm really really looking forward to seeing it i mean do you do you before we kind of wrap up vincent you've been so generous with your time i, I honestly cannot be more appreciative of no you coming on and, and we've we've gone probably over two hours it's been fantastic speaking to you but where um can people see you in terms of obviously you've just kind of spoke there about one of a bit of a break and a time off but will you be going out into the convention world and where will people be able to kind of meet you and totally. see you be around? Um, I'll be at days of the dead in Atlanta. Um, uh, at the end of uh, January, um, once never hike alone two is out, I'll probably be all over the country. Um, we'll post all sorts of screenings. I mean, I'm still going to make time for that. That's my favorite thing to do. Um, convention life going on the convention circuit. I've made so many friends. And so seeing them out there, it feels like, you know, vacation with, with my friends and seeing more of them. And I think it's a lot, you know, when I go out there now, I'm advertising to help finish something. And then once you've completed something, the victory lap of, of flying around with a movie to show to people is, is like I said, like, there is no better rewarding experience. Going to a place, showing it to people, having a crowd react to it, talk about it, talk about the work. It makes all the sacrifice worth it. Worth it um being able to bring people with me to do that um and sort of surrounding myself with friends or co-workers or you know any you know people by my side it's going to be a really um you know i i really hope this gives me the opportunity to travel the world and because conventions happen on the weekends because you know taking a friday off is a lot easier than taking three months off um i can make that time you know i can make that time to say hey and it's, you know, at that point, I can't kind of like, don't you know who I am type thing? Uh, <laughs> like go to my boss and be like, yo, they, they signed me up for a convention this weekend. I'm going to go show my movie. And, you know, maybe 10 people will ask me to sign some, some masks. Uh, but I'm not going to be here Friday. <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to be working from the hotel. 
And then I'm going to go out and do my screening. I'm going to be hanging out in this city all weekend. I'll be back Monday morning. And, um, you know, luckily I've met people in my life who that is, that's the journey they want to go on to because they're convention people and they're horror movie people. And they love this stuff as much as I do. And I think that that's what I had to do. I had to go out and find the people who love this stuff as much as I do. So that when I go off on these little adventures, these are people that want to come with me. And these are people that want to be there. And they're just as like, if I wasn't there, they'd be there too. So I don't have to drag anybody to anything. I don't have to force anybody to like work on anything. Not that I would ever force anybody, but like, the fact that I don't have to like beg and plead and like, like you don't want that in life. Like you don't want to have to be with people or be surrounded by people. It's like, Hey, I want to do that thing, but I really love doing. And it's like pulling teeth with them. You want to be like, Hey, do you like doing this thing? I like doing this thing. Let's go do the thing. (laughs) And it's happy. And we have fun because we both love doing it. And like, I don't want to force anyone to be into this stuff. You know what I mean? So I know it's weird. Um, It's not for everybody, but for the people it is for, um, you know, I, I you know, I, I, it's a lot of fun. I love meeting people on the convention circuit, seeing people at festivals, talking to other filmmakers. Um, you know, f- people who email me and stuff like that, like asking for advice. I have like all these pre-written emails from people, be like, "Oh, you need to know about fan films? Here's like the whole list of things you need to know. Oh, you need about crowdfunding? Here's a whole list of things you need to know." Love helping people. Um, it's you know, it's it's one of the most rewarding factors of this. Um, and if people wanna research us if they don't know about us yet and they've listened to this thing they're like who the hell is this guy um you want to go to youtube.com slash films that's our company w-o-m-p-s-t-o-m-p-f-i-l-m-s we are on youtube on instagram on tiktok on facebook on twitter um we're pretty we're fairly active on social media we have blips of like lots of activity and then we go quiet for a while because we actually have stuff to make um, but if you ever want to know anything about the films, go there. If you want to donate to Never Hike Alone 2, uh, that's on Indiegogo. Um, just search Never Hike Alone 2 on Indiegogo. I'm sure the links will be in different things in around. The links are all over our social media pages. Indiegogo, that will be open throughout the year until the end of production. Get your name in the credits. Uh, right now we have over 2,600 backers from over 38 countries around the world. Uh, we raised over $238,000. Um, and we're trying to raise 250 and maybe even $300,000. If we raise 300, uh, we have a whole new prequel that we're going to go make. So we got a lot, we got like a, an animated, some animated stuff that we want to do with, with the project, but we have, you know, it's not just getting your name in the credits. We have Blu-rays. So Blu-rays of the films, you have t-shirts, pins, posters, uh, ghost Jason figures, um, sweatshirts, all sorts of fun stuff, uh, props from the movie, um, we're still looking for more producers. So if anyone's out there who's got like a couple grand burn in their pocket, you email us at wompstompfilms at gmail.com and uh, you could get your name on the front of the movie. Um, you can name yourself after one of the characters is one of the perks as well. So your character, you, the name of the character in the credits will be your name, will be referred to by your name on screen and most likely they will be killed as well. So you'll be one of the victims in the movie. So there's a lot there to invest in. And then, you know, the, the pitch is, is that 20 years from now, when people look back at Never Hike Alone and they look back at Never Hike Alone too, and they watch the Blu-ray, they watch the thing on YouTube, there's a list of names that are going to scroll by. And every single one of those per- people are responsible for the film getting made. Yes, we made the movie, but without those 2,000 people in the credits, without the people in the VIP credits to get their own little section, we couldn't have done it. 
we, we don't, I don't have the, the, the pocket change and I can't work enough hours in my life to, to earn the amount of money that it would take to make these movies. So I'm super grateful for anyone that joins it. And I think people should celebrate for the fact that like they get to get their name in it. Yeah. They're associated with it till the end of time. And they get to say that they were a part of it. And when somebody else watches it and they go, oh, you know, I saw this movie called Never Hike Alone. They'd be like, oh, yeah, did you watch all the way through the credits? My name's in the credits. Yeah. I helped it. I have the original Blu-ray. You know what I mean? Like, I know you, you got in on the Never Hike in the Snow, but I go back to, like, the first Never Hike Alone um, <laughs> home video campaign that we did because we did the red cases for Never Hike Alone 1. And those are the only time we ever did red cases. Dual disc with Blu-ray and DVD it was my first venture into home video. Um, but if you have one of those, the price value is just going up. Yeah. The price value <laughs> of having a, a first edition, never hike in the snow. I'm sure that's going up. We have second and third editions of these things coming along. Like ne never hike alone. We have a second and third edition, never hike in the snow. We have a second edition. I don't know if I'm going to do a third edition because we did the ghost cut was basically our third edition, but you know, never hike alone two is going to have its copy. And then we've been recently talking about going back and remastering all the films because they've all been shot in 4K and they've all been exported in 4K. Mm -hmm. And now that 4K technology is more accessible, we're going to look at doing reruns of everything in 4K and maybe doing a master cut in 4K that we'll do after the fact. But that will require their own crowdfunding campaigns. That way we can isolate those costs and know that it's going to cost a few thousand dollars to get a disc image made. It's going to cost a few thousand dollars to get a master disc made. And then it's going to cost, you know, between three and five dollars per disc or whatever, or actually with 4K discs, probably between seven and ten dollars per disc. So being able to calculate that and understand how much we need, we know what our goal can be. And then only at a certain point do we realize that we hit our goal and we can exceed it. And with excess funds, excess funds mean that original projects can get made. It yeah. means that we can donate to good causes. It means that we can make the perks better. Like one thing I love doing, because I'm sure as a fan, you probably experienced this, but like for a while, Friday the 13th home video stuff was awful. Wrong covers, yeah. bad yeah. discs, bad special features. Like I love being able to like inject steroids into the artwork and all that stuff. So I would definitely, um, I would definitely put it out there for people to, uh, to, to support these things and, and support the home video stuff because we, our home video stuff is good. I take a lot of pride in that. Um, and I feel like we deliver and, and the manufacturer we go through is a professional Blu-ray manufacturer. They make stuff for professional productions. Like we found a way in like a back door. They let us like buy like 1000 discs at a time. So um, you're not getting like print, like print.com. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? You're getting like <laughs> what you get it at uh, the local, like, you know, whether it's a Walmart or a Best Buy, or I'm, I'm not sure what you guys have in the UK, but. We got the same kind of thing. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, You're getting the same type of quality from that. That's what we try to deliver. Yeah. And that's what we try to deliver with our films too. We want films to have, we want fans to have an experience like they, they've backed the real thing. Not that we're trying to replace the real thing because we can never replace the real thing, but we can come close. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a really good place to wrap up and uh i think we've covered pretty much everything there so vincent it's been such a pleasure having you on the show um just yeah you've been you will we've started to get guests on and stuff like that and you were one of my top kind of names that i wanted to get on so the fact that you came on donated so much of your time there it's it's you know really appreciated for everyone out there please do back never hike alone too you know 
one stop films doing amazing things for the franchise. Got some amazing things on the YouTube channel already. Go and check them out. Go and back Never Hike Alone. And like I said, Vincent, just thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Ryan. It's good to be here. So there we have it, guys. That was the full interview with Vincent DeSanti here on Slasher Street Podcast. Hope you're all enjoyed that. It was an absolute pleasure to sit down with Vincent and talk all things Womstomp Films, all things Never Hike Alone, all things Dylan's New Nightmare, all things Vincent's entire career. It was an absolute pleasure and an honor to sit down with Vincent. And I've been a, I've been a big fan of the Never Hike Alone series and a big fan of Vincent's work for a long, long time. So it really was a pleasure and an honor to get him on the show. Uh, please do support Womp Stomp Films. Please do donate to Never Hike Alone 2 if you can. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes for the Indiegogo campaign. So check that out if you want to. Also, guys, please do give us a follow on Instagram. Please do give us a like on Facebook slash a street podcast for both of those. And if you can, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you're listening to us, please do leave us a review. That would be greatly appreciated. Now, it's been teased for weeks, but I guarantee you the next episode, the next episode on Slasher Street Podcast will be The Barn Part 2. We could get offered Robert England next week, and I will be delivering you The Barn Part 2 review. Well, maybe actually, if we get offered Robert England, maybe not. But unless that situation occurs... The review for The Barn Part 2, the in-depth review on The Barn Part 2, will be coming next week, so keep your eyes peeled for that one. But in the meantime, everyone, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you have lasted the full near two and a half hours, I hope it's been worth it for you guys. It was certainly worth it for me. It was fantastic and a great time chatting to Vincent there. So, ladies and gentlemen, I will see you on the next episode of Slasher Street Podcast. Stay tuned, and there's only one thing left to do, and that is to stay scared. Eyes are deceiving me. What you see is real. What's done is done, and what I've done is right. It's the work of science.